I kick ass for the Lord. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and I'm truly honored to be sitting with two extremely smart individuals who have been on the show before many times. We have film critic extraordinaire Colin Suter. Hello. Who was most recently on the George Miller episode. Welcome back, Colin. Thank you. And of course, one of my new favorite people to talk films with. Uh, he joined me for one of the most popular episodes of the show to date. The Stanley Kubrick episode. Say hello to Mr. Al Chikovsky, and I'm probably you can feel free to correct me on that pronunciation. Uh, it's perfectly fine. Thanks for having me, Jim, and uh, great to be back. Yes. Um, before we begin, let's get an update from both of you on how you're doing. Colin, anything new in the works, or I mean, any projects or adventures that you've had recently, just to give an audience <laughs> an update. Um, adventures? No. Um, I've been working, uh, while well, still being a film critic here in Chicago and, you know, that keeps me busy on my weeknights, uh, you know, seeing all the latest releases and everything and reviewing them on WGN radio on Nick DeGilio's show and, uh, writing about short films for RogerEbert.com. I got a horror movie, uh, coming on, uh, this Tuesday that Ooh. I'll be posting about, uh, called... Uh, House of Straw, and it's uh, from the director of another short film that I wrote about a couple of years ago called Necronomica. And this is a, oh, a right. really this is a, a, a nice grisly little suburban horror tale. That the less said about it, the better, because there's a wonderful twist at the end. Hmm. Uh, so on Tuesday, October fourth, I think that's the fourth, whatever or fifth, whatever that Tuesday is. Um, uh, that will be posted on RogerEbert.com, and we'll all ha- have an interview with the director. So um, there you go. And I'll present I'll, – I'll put a link in the show notes, of course, when that comes up. Cool. So people check that out. Um, and anything memorable from that wild road trip that you went on? Oh, God. Because uh, it felt very lost there. in America to me. It was very – I guess so, yeah. I took a road trip to the southwest. I stayed in Austin, Texas for a couple days with a friend of mine and his family, and then I drove out to – uh, Roswell, New Mexico, and oh. saw the aliens. Oh, cool! Um, which is a nice little visit. You don't need more than I. I think you could do all of Roswell in ninety minutes. Um, hmm. You know, <laughs> you can go in, look at the aliens, and get out. And then uh, went to um, uh, the Vegas. very large array. Oh. No, I didn't get to Vegas yet. Yeah. The very large array, which is that lovely array of uh, radio telescopes out in the middle of New Mexico, famous uh, uh, in for the movie Contact. Woo-hoo. Um, and uh, then I went to the Grand Canyon and then Vegas and then Monument Valley and then Red Rocks and then I came home. So there you go. And drove through some very memorable storms and there's very actually... Very memorable a, storms. Yeah. And it's a road trip I highly recommend everybody do. It's a, It was a great, great time. Well, as Brian Cox says at the end of 25th Hour, at one point in your life you have to see the desert. Yeah. And that's something that I've been meaning to do in my, in my lifetime, so... I saw the desert from my car window. I wouldn't actually say I went into the desert. Right, you didn't walk into be, it like he did. But. No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't have time. <laughs> it was yeah. a very uh, yeah, pressing schedule. But yeah. 
And Al, you recently went to the Toronto International Film Festival. What was that like? Any celebrity sightings? Or I know you've contributed some reviews. Thank you very much. To- oh, hey, you know, and uh, thanks for thanks for posting on those. Like there are some, uh, um, there's a couple more that are uh, coming up. It's, cool. Uh, it was basically a trek that I was very lucky to make with um, members of a great uh, Chicago club on Meetup called the Chicago Film Discussion Group, and uh, I and uh, three other members of the group managed to uh, head on over this year. And uh, between the four of us, we managed to see upwards of like 50 of the 300 films in Toronto. Wow! Yeah, and uh, um, a, a large amount of reviews have already like made it to a specific site that we are setting up just for this purpose. And um, and there's um, and we basically checked out across the last half of uh, the Toronto Fest. Cool. The fest itself, like it's, it was very, very much of a of a marathon and a sprint because usually we're, is yes we ended up seeing like on on average four films a day and um, so if you're going from theater to theater, there's not a lot of time for like so we didn't end up with a lot of time for celebrity watching although. I do believe I um, uh, passed by that the guy from 300, um, uh, Jared <laughs> Butler, passed me on the street. And part of it was because of his Spartan-like beard, and part of it because he was wearing a shirt so ugly that only a celebrity would think he'd be able to get away with it. <laughs> wow. Well, that sounds like fun, and you can check out his reviews at popcultureclub.net. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited to see uh, some some of the titles that you've already reviewed, including Patterson. I know that's playing the Chicago International Film Festival, so might catch up with that very soon, the new Jim Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's a lot to look forward to uh, in the latter half of the year, as I, I, I've mentioned before. So very excited, and I'm also very excited to talk about one of the biggest names we've yet to cover, and that would be Mr. Peter Jackson. Um, let me preface to everyone first and foremost since is this since this is October and many many conversations um, when you talk about Peter Jackson have already been about a certain fantasy franchise that he helped to create we are bypassing both the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings for now um, so we're mainly sticking to his other work mainly the horror films because once October rolls around it's all about pumpkin spice and horror movies for me and I wanted to touch upon Peter Jackson's early work, and as well as a couple of other films he did later on in the midst of doing these incredible franchises that he's mostly known for and won awards for. But um, we can start at the very, very beginning, because it's very interesting to learn about how he started out, and just in terms of, he was really interested in architecture and building his own models and basically designing his own special effects at the age of nine. Like he was making these crazy home movies and home videos that were just really innovative in of its time. Um, and has that same sensibility that I think like Sam Raimi had early on with just like getting a bunch of friends together and then shooting something, you know, DIY style all on their own. Um, and that's pretty much how his first film came about. I mean, he initially wanted this to be a 20 minute short film and then it expanded like, he was working a job pretty much six days a week, and then on Sundays he'd be shooting what would be uh, come what would become to known as Bad Taste, which uh, is the first film we'll be discussing. Probably the second film of his that I saw after Dead Alive. Um, so yeah, first impressions or first experiences with Bad Taste. Um, for me, it was not. I mean, I, I had a hard time getting into it uh, when I first saw it. I think I probably saw it in the mid nineties at some point, probably, yeah, yeah, probably like you after I saw dead alive. And, uh, I just, I, I couldn't stick with, I mean, I, I kept falling asleep 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I would think I probably watched it late at night. That was probably a mistake. But I just didn't really wasn't into the storyline. Um, and I think there's something about the execution that was a little bit off-putting to me at the time. I've since rewatched it for this uh, podcast after having not seen it since. And um, I have a little more admiration for it. I think I was I I I think it is exactly what you said in that it feels like a bunch of friends getting together and making a goofy film. Uh, We've never made a film before, but you know, darn it, we feel ready. We're going to do it. And um, I think there's a lot of really clever, funny, cartoonish ideas in yeah. the film. Even though I just couldn't care less about the story or the characters, I don't think Peter Jackson had a real grasp on that kind of storytelling yet. No, that he would later that he would later uh, you know develop as he went along. Here he's just you know he's a special effects guy. He's obviously a special effects guy, and that's like his first and foremost interest. Mm-hmm. I mean, his favorite film of all time is King Kong, and we'll get to that later. But uh, you know, he's he's always. He's always said, like, you know, he's first and foremost. He's kind of like George Lucas in that way. Yeah, um, I can see that. But, a, you know, a better storyteller in many ways. Um, and I think there's I think there's clever... I, I mean, I think, you know, he. I think he treats humans in this film and the next couple we'll talk about like they're cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a character whose brain is spilling out of the back of his head and he just kind of grabs it and tucks it back in there and, you know... <laughs> And, and goes about tries to go about his day, and I think there's I mean you can kind of tell when you're watching this that he's not just uh, a, a good special effects guy but a great editor like he already had like that instinct of like how much coverage a scene needs and you know where to put the camera and uh, how to keep a scene moving and, mm-hmm. and how to have fluid editing so you're not you know noticing that this is a first film. And I think I think on a technical level, I think bad taste, you know, given all the circumstances under which it was made, is a is a well crafted first film, you know, for from a director who's you know you know jumping in for the first time and trying everything. Yeah, I mean, he basically kind of went the Orson Welles route to some degree by building his own dollies and cranes and yeah. things that he couldn't afford at the time. So he just sort of had that approach that again DIY approach that you can't help but be charmed by I mean you know he's done like DIY tutorials for low budget filmmakers not unlike what Robert Rodriguez did and I appreciate him for that um in terms of the movie itself I am 100% with you I'm not crazy about it but it has wonderful moments that you can see the blueprints for what would later come you know like Dead Alive sort of finds that right balance Mm -hmm. whereas this is just kind of like you know goofy sight gags very cartoonish Um, you know I certainly you know find myself laughing at the ridiculousness at times but not consistently um i certainly like the you know the idea of a gun being placed into a body and (laughs) getting shot and people getting shot that way i mean it has really inventive ideas but i i couldn't care less about the characters or the story either i mean it's more of just like a kind of like a, a curiosity to watch this film and kind of go well that's how he began and you can clearly see it's a debut film Mm-hmm. Al? Hmm. Um, I like um, uh, it's really interesting that Colin brought up about the late night session because that was actually my first Peter Jackson movie and I literally saw it at a midnight screening I'd heard of Peter huh. Jackson's reputation 
um, of, of War around Dead Alive. But then uh, Bad Taste was actually playing at the um, um, sadly passed Village Theater in Chicago off of like uh, Clark Clark and North Avenue. And mm. so I caught the Bad Taste over at a midnight uh, screening. And the midnight setting seemed to me to work perfectly for it. Sure. And as yeah. for, I mean, and in is that like... The movie to me is kind of shows that like he is maybe one of the maybe the most successful DIY filmmaker because as Colin said he has shown he shows with his first film that he has a really solid grasp of director fundamentals mm-hmm. and editing fundamentals and whereas like you know he's making his own dolly tracks and I, I amazingly he created his own version of a steady cam by literally yeah. having different like different rocks and stones to be uh, mounted alongside the camera apparatus but it works mm-hmm. it's smooth it's gliding mm-hmm. by way of comparison to his american uh, american um compatriot sam raimi i think is the closest comparison you can make to him but like look at what raimi does with the uh, monster in the woods by simply he puts a camera on a motorcycle and mm-hmm. it looks like a uh, like a deranged experiment but when, yeah. when 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 jackson does a steady cam it works as a steady cam. It's smooth, yeah. yeah. And and it and and you and it's also super interesting how you brought up like it was originally a twenty minute short because yeah. if there's one thing that like um, that I think defines Peter Jackson, I think it one of it has to be his overwhelming ambition and how mm-hmm. successful he's able to manifest most of that ambition. Like the directing direct direction choices work. The the camera motion choices work. But think of someone who's doing his first film, literally has a house launch into outer space. Literally decides <laughs> to have a like literally decides to have a build up a bazooka. And like and just everything involving with the the beetle the car with the beetles driving alongside yeah. is just that is just yeah. inspired. Like just the, I mean, that's one of the things I really kind of adore about his as a filmmaker is that he has these less really crazy ideas, and he has a level of engagement to it, a level of um, to to put it together and makes it works, and it works in a way way better than you would ever think it has a right to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, I think um, you know the 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 genuine enthusiasm that he has is not unlike something like Raimi or maybe what John Carpenter did with Dark Star early on in his career, and then. Like you can't watch um, a Peter Jackson movie without being so attuned to like Dutch angles or really fast zoom in and push-ins and all those kind of camera tricks that I I've I've loved ever since I saw Evil Dead Two and then After Hours a couple years later where the camera work is just. has this manic energy to it that is not unlike just the overall feel or the characters and the way they're acting. It's like the camera is really engaged with, um, you know, a, a certain pace and a flow to it. And it's just fast and it moves really quickly. Whereas bad taste, I think the only thing I, I, I do feel, it's kind of funny that you mentioned ambition, Al. He, his, we can all talk about this later too. He, his length for films kind of goes overboard. Yeah, like maybe I, this would have been great as a twenty-minute short film, but as like an eighty-minute feature film, I think it's just okay. But I love seeing the inventiveness behind well, what, for, he, what he what he put together. Fortunately, he's learned his lesson to not make series four times longer than they need to be. You say that with sarcasm, right? I, I, I hope the microphone can pick that up. <laughs> Just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah, I should have yeah, we got, I got a lot to though. say about length later on <laughs> about his films. Yeah, um, 
But it's interesting. I, I thought that when I was watching Bad Taste that this is a film to be watched with a crowd in a, in a midnight show. Yeah. It doesn't work on you know my just me sitting in my apartment watching it by myself. You know, it just it, you you kind of do need that communal experience for it. Mm-hmm. That I makes think, sense. And I think he um, has that in mind when he makes what during in this early stage of his career. I think he is thinking about that uh, experience of having a lot of people watch this and everybody having a, a visceral vocal reaction to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he, he's, he definitely has that, um, that sense of showmanship that, that that's a word I'm sure I'm going to be using a lot during this podcast, but it is true. It is. He is definitely not, these aren't like, oh, I'm making this for me. And you know, this is, this, I, I don't care if nobody else likes it. I like it. No, he's thinking about that audience all the time. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so. And it certainly helped too that, you know, he was initially working with like a $25,000 budget and then a friend of his, I know his name is Jim, but I can't remember his last name, but he, he passed away uh, around Heavenly Creatures. He worked with the New Zealand Film Commission, and he had a choice of which movie to help out with at the time and helped Peter Jackson get $235,000 to finish Bad Taste. Yeah. So they became friends pretty quick as yeah. a result of that. Um, but yeah, no, I just, again, it's a nice starting point for him. It's really interesting just to go back and see. Um, just how certain elements that you'd see in Dead Alive, or even the Frighteners to some extent, uh, just just how assured he is behind the camera and his choices and the editing is very fluid and it just it flows yeah. overall. And I also want to note that like that, um, much like how well composed his imagery already is at this early stage, he also ramps up. The action. It's not a case of like so many DIY horror films which just have one showcase scene mm-hmm. to be at the end. He throws in some paramilitary opera, paramilitary right. operations. Right. A lot of gunplay. He, he has a very, very suspenseful like scene in the hallway, a very uh, featuring a very big bowl of stuff, <laughs> and um, and then and he even introduces an actual social satirical context when you find out what's been motivating the, mm-hmm. some of the characters, which absolutely does not need to be there. And even it's it's kind of also funny to me that it's his first move that in his first movie he's started on a trend where he has like not since Alfred Hitchcock has a guy really explored like issues with uh, his, uh, the mother figure sure. <laughs> <laughs> in quite as uh, extensive a manner. <laughs> Yeah, and you'll always find Peter Jackson doing some sort of cameo, too, if you look closely. Yeah. <laughs> I think he plays two characters in I, Bad Taste. Actually. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah. I think a lot of them had to double up and maybe even put on some alien masks. Yeah. yeah. Which he made himself, I guess, in his mother's oven or something, which is pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> no, again, like, he just, he was inventive in that way. He just, like, I'm going to make my own stuff, and that's a really admirable approach that has led him to bigger and better things. Um but Meet the Feebles was one I didn't get a chance to rewatch because um, I didn't get to it. But <laughs> I remember thinking it was just okay when I rented it with friends. Like, we all watched it together, having loved Dead Alive, and I think we laughed sporadically, again, not consistently. Um, I mean, I love the idea of a subversive take on the Muppets because I love the Muppets, and I like it when people you know, um, do a satire or parody or something crazy and wild, or even just a vulgar approach to the Muppets. But, um, I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of vomit. I remember there being a lot of vomit. (laughs) I mean, a lot of bodily fluids come up in all three of his first movies, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, um, 
Yeah, this was like his $750,000 puppet show, essentially, and I don't remember too much about it, but I'm curious. Does it hold up for you guys? Um, For me, it kind of does. Sure. It, uh, and I agree. The first time I watched it, it, I, it was hard to take, and it was because it, the tone of it is so obnoxious. I mean, <laughs> it really is an obnoxious movie. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but I mean the tone of it is very in your face and, you know, with all the, you know, bodily fluids and you got to, you know, you got to fly literally, you know, eating shit, uh, you know, in close up. You got uh, you know, uh, rabbits literally fucking like rabbits. Um, you know, uh, yeah, and the walrus, yeah, pukes up a fish that is auditioning for him. I mean, it, it does take on that Muppet Show. It's it's a Muppet Show, uh, you know, story structure, and that it's all you know backstage, behind the scenes of a of a wholesome family puppet show that is put on right. for God knows who. There's not a single human being in this film. It's all puppets, um, and. You uh, and there's kind of a manic energy of it. There's multiple storylines going on with these, you know, backstage characters, um, and it is. Uh, I think the first, but I, I think the more I watched it, I, I watched it a few times because uh, you know I was you know in a Rocky Horror cast at the time, and this was as cult filmish as you can get. Yeah, so, I can see. You that. know, you yeah. watch movies mul- like this multiple times when you have a group of friends, like you know, Rocky Horror friends. And um, Meet the Feebles is one that the more I watched it, the more I really warmed up to it and really admired uh, not just, you know, uh, the storyline and the and the sort of ballsiness of it, but also just as a film. I think it's beautifully I, – I, I think um, Jackson went a few steps further as a filmmaker in that uh, the lighting is really nice. I mean, it's kind of darkly lit, but uh, but um, in almost kind of a noir sort of way um in Hmm. some scenes um the sequence uh towards the end i I, is is unthinkable now but uh there's a one character who's like dying to do this musical number on the show and no one will let him do it but now there's a (laughs) hole in the program and something's got to go on and he says okay i'm gonna do my show finally this is it (laughs) and it's a song about sodomy and it's like Uh, yes okay beautiful operatic song about sodomy and he (laughs) and and jackson crosscuts this sequence this song with uh a female hippo character who's finally lost it and is and is now Walk, walking through the halls backstage and gunning down everybody she sees with an <laughs> Uzi. Um, I don't think this. I you know I was like, there's something about this sequence that is just it's wrong on so many levels, and yet it's kind of beautiful to watch. Yeah, kind of um, like a Monty Python sensibility to it a little kinda, bit with its subversive vulgarity. Maybe oh, very, it's an extremely vulgar film, and but it's also kind of like a beautifully made film too. But it, but at the, you know on a technical level, but like every character in it is, uh, you know, is kind of this obnoxious creation. Um, Mm. You know, I mean, uh, and it's meant to, it's meant to sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of turn the Muppet show on its ear and and kind of give it the finger uh, as in a sense, because, you know, like everybody's trying to put on this wholesome puppet show, but backstage they're making porno. (laughs) 
Um, you know, there's like a, a rat making porno movies, uh, you know, backstage. Yeah, maybe not so much Monty Python, but Trey Parker and Matt Stone kind well, of a, a quality mean, to it. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, this is definitely pre-South Park, pre-Sausage Party. I mean, this yeah. is, you know, oh, an R-rated puppet movie. Well, this is, you know, or an R-rated animated film. Well, this is kind of the first of its kind, I think. Yeah. Um, that I can think of, anyway. Uh, this came out in 1989, I believe. Um, I'll double check that, but uh, I mean, it's still, it still is pretty ahead of its time in a way. It's something to be said about like about the kind of tone that it strikes, and and just kind of like maybe the value of what of like why you decide to be subversive on a subject. Well, I mean, looking at it now, really comes to mind. Um, a, a, a kind of unheralded feature that you would get actually on the um, Spinal Tap DVD. There was like a whole bunch of deleted scenes, and when, I remember hmm. when I saw it, I was really quite quite taken aback by it because a lot of the deleted scenes, the the rock stars in the movie actually act like rock stars. They take <laughs> drugs. They sleep yeah. with women a lot. Right. They go and like they go and mess with people, and but none of that is in. Spinal Tap, the, all those edges of actual rock experience which have been sanded over to make basically three lovable idiot children. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and, like, and, and so would, would, it be a, would it be a better movie in Spinal Tap if they added those scenes? Actually, probably not. Any more than necessarily people would need to see a Muppet show that, were more, that was more, you know, quote-unquote, feeble right? So, so it makes me wonder as to what, you know, what would be the value of making, like, making that subversive? Obviously, the real theater world is a lot crazier and a lot more deranged than even what happens in Meet the Feebles. Right. But, but and then, and so, is there something, was there, is there some sort of reaction to, like, making it such an innocent fun time thing that the Muppet show creates, you know? So, I, I, I mean, it, I think that's kind of like an interesting question as to what are you, what's the point of satirizing What's something? the intention behind right. doing that? Is it yeah. just juvenile, yeah. is it just juvenile middle finger uh, punk move or? <laughs> I think to some degree. degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, at the time, like, I think Muppets were, this is 19, this is late 80s, so by now Jim Henson is doing, you know, Muppet Babies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Muppets, whatever they were, have since been, like, sanitized even more, you know, than they were. And uh, Yeah, they took the satire out of it for a while and just yeah, became right. really wholesome and right. cutesy. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, this might be a, a reaction to that as well yeah. at the time. You know, now Muppets are very revered and very, you know... Uh, sort of a, a cornerstone in American television. Thank you, Jason Siegel. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> Jim Henson is, you know, just kind of one of those figures in American pop culture that, you know, is sacred to many people, myself included. Um, but at the time, I think, you know, maybe the Muppets had it coming a little bit. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, that really leads to me, that leads to a really interesting question upon, like, when you when you say sacred, I mean, but... but at, there's a there's a potential problem I feel with like making things sacred is that you keep them in under like a glass case and then you sure. mm-hmm. you don't let people be like be able to creatively express things like yeah. I'm reminded of like how like um, when uh, Scorsese came out of Wolf of Wall Street for example the very same people who laud him as a great director are like what are you doing this movie is so vulgar it's so loud it's so obnoxious like 
have you seen Raging Bull? Have right. you seen Taxi Driver? Like, holding reverence to him, ironically, kept people from appreciating the very qualities that made him such a legendary thing in the first place. And I think that maybe also go with the anarchic spirit of the Muppets, to, said to treat him as a, as a brand of, like, you know, baby toys for kids and so on. Um, I mean, but getting back up to the Feebles part, I mean, like, his audacity that he has already displayed in bad taste had just gone out through the roof on it because he went so far in just yeah. like what you even what before even people would think about doing a Muppet setting like I remember myself personally I was blown away when there was one character who is a frog who turns out to be a heroin addict right yeah. and then when it turns out <laughs> that the reason that he's a heroin addict is because he was having flashbacks in Vietnam right. like whoa why would you even include that yeah. and <laughs> then he shows it yeah mm-hmm. and the puppets and and the puppets in in the Vietnam sequence are just a little racist yeah you know? <laughs> the yeah. buck teeth and everything i mean it's just yeah. ridiculous yeah and i like that the heroin addict has uh, and this has nothing to do with anything, but I just noticed when I watched it a couple weeks ago that the heroin addict sounds very much like David Strathairn. <laughs> oh, weird. Kind of that voice like this, you know. That's, that, it's like this is this is very strange. Um, I mean, a lot of the voices. I mean, that that's a big part of why I keep using the word obnoxious is because you know a lot of the voices that are used in this movie aren't you know like nuanced and mm-hmm. you know like henson and david uh goes gales i forgot his, how to pronounce his name or or or, or frank Oz, yeah, you frank know? Oz. It's, yeah it's it's everybody just kind of going um i'll just do it like this yeah i'll do my voice like this okay <laughs> now we got a movie you know it's like that's right imagine if we did a whole podcast like that uh well <laughs> we have a movie that's all like that um yeah but uh, but he but i mean like he peter jackson was clearly onto something with with the Miss Piggy surrogate in Meet the oh, Feebles. Yeah. Like, uh, Frank, yeah. Oz, Frank Oz was a particular genius to make such a character who is absolutely an obnoxious, possessive, mm. uh, hyperventilating diva and make her a lovable character. Yeah. And, and I guess Peter Jackson just kind of shining a spot like, no, no, yeah. you don't want to be anywhere around someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even Marlon Brando wanted to call Frank Oz Miss Piggy on the set of The Score all the time. That's how much he loved that character, apparently, which is crazy. Well, he, he picked up some dietary habits from him, at least. Oh, yeah. I swallowed a bug. <laughs> and a lot of baked potatoes, apparently. Yes. So, yeah, um, now we get to one of my favorites, which I think everybody around the table here... Was this your first Peter Jackson experience? Usually I ask that question up front, but... I kind of assumed it must have been Dead Alive. I yeah, would it think. was for me. Yeah, yeah definitely. same here. I had only heard, again. I'd heard about it. I'd, I'd only heard its reputation, especially one particular priest in the movie. But then I ended up seeing Bad Taste first, and which very much whetted my appetite. Okay, that's cool. I think this is just about as perfect of a zombie splatter fest as I've ever seen. I it goes above and beyond over the top, especially if you see the director's cut, and it just I don't know it soars into the sky of grossness. I it, and to the point where it's like I am my jaws on the floor by some of the imagery in this and the gore and the guts and things that um, I mean. I, I, I do have a hard time watching the, uh, is it pudding or porridge or whatever they're eating, and yeah. a giant ear, and yeah. I'm like, oh, like some of that is just really uh, <laughs> nauseating, but in the good way. <laughs> the, the porridge scene in Bad Taste is also awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely, definitely. But I mean, this it, it's almost like a period piece, because it's set in the 50s, and there's antique cars, there's just... 
um, again, a whole other subversive element with that going on and the romantic angle. The thing is, is like, I mean, unlike a lot of other movies like this, like a trauma movie or something, I actually care about Lionel. I actually think yeah. he's a great character. Hmm. You know, I go along with the journey here and, you know, his mother relationship is fascinating mm-hmm. in of itself. Um, and yeah, I just, I love everything about this, including, you know, I mean, you can say what you want to about what Ash does, you know, later on in, as the Evil Dead series progresses. But look at Lionel and that lawnmower man. Mm-hmm. That's just freaking great. Um, <laughs> well, it has a cartoonish rhythm again that I love. Yeah, yeah it's um uh, before. I mean, actually, until um, I consider it like the second best zombie movie, and part of the reason is it set it up. It set up the groundwork for the best zombie movie, which I would say would be Shaun of the Dead. Sure, I can see that. Yeah. It, it, it takes the zombie genre and literally ties it into some sort of faulty towers level domestic awkwardness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah with Freudian flourishes. Mm-hmm. Very much so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's actually no coincidence that this guy who's like having trouble being a guy in the 50s decides to finally assert his masculinity with a lawnmower, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the ultimate suburban fantasy in a way. Yeah, yeah. take note, David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, I first saw it uh, at the Music Box in a midnight show in 1993 when it first Whoa. came out. And, great. man, the audience was loving it. I've never heard an audience like this before and that's what like really like made me remember the name peter jackson because i we went my friends and i we went multiple times uh the music box held it over for a long time i bet and um and this was just this was the show to see i mean it wasn't a movie it was a show uh and it was you know when that lawnmower comes out man i mean the audience was losing it applauding oh yeah. yeah huge applause and just just and and but like like you said though, it's not just all that blood and gore. Like I think this is where Peter Jackson really grew as a storyteller mm-hmm. and learned to like actually create characters that are you know worth investing in. Um, the character of Lionel and the the girl that he's in love with, whose name is escaping me right now, but mm, um, yeah, Lapita, Lapita, I think yeah. so, yeah, uh, or Paquita or Lapita or something like that. Um, you know, it was very sweet. I mean, I mean, it was like it was nicely, it was nicely told. It was, you mm-hmm. know, it, you had to kind of wait for the splatter. You had to wait for you know the big show to start. Uh, for you know, and and I think that was a real, you know, that was a good sign that he wasn't just a splatter guy or a guy making out to make obnoxious movies that pushed the the boundaries. He actually wanted to tell stories. Um, I, you know what's funny to me though with this film is that you know we're we're heaping a lot of praise on it and yet uh, it doesn't really enjoy the same like afterlife that you know the Evil Dead or the you know the the George Romero movies do where hmm. we're celebrating an anniversary of it. It doesn't get re released. I'm surprised by that. It should have a cult. It has a cult following, I would think. But. It does, but I mean, it's out of print on DVD. Um, really? I, and I. Don't know that it ever was ever put out on Blu-ray, uh, but mm. I I didn't find it on I couldn't find it on Amazon. Well, but, I should have looked at it. Well, but, um, huh. there's actually well, do you want to hear the ironic reason for why that's the case? Why is that? It's it's really ironic in light of what Peter Jackson did later. It's because he never made Dead Alive two, Dead Alive three. Dead Alive, the TV series, Land of the Dead Alive, <laughs> coming back uh, to the Dead could Alive. Be, Couldn't package it together, or like make he, a. He didn't well, go and mine that material over and over and over, which is what Raimi and Romero did. That's true, but I also think it has something to do with. I mean, uh, you know, 
when it, it the original title was Brain Dead. That's what that's what it's called all over the world, except in the U.S. It's called Dead Alive, and I think that's having, due to the like, Bill Pullman, Bill Paxton movie of the same name. I right. think. Well, uh, I mean, the thing is that it's it helps to kind of have that consistency with a title, you know, mm-hmm, if, if it's mm-hmm. gonna have that sort of longevity as as something that you know is is celebrated. Uh, so I think it's got that going against it. Um, I also just think that, you know, I I kind of think maybe it was a movie where you had to be there when it came out. I think there's something about Jackson's style um, that is kind of hard, that kind of makes it hard to, uh, you know, warm up to a little bit uh, when you watch it today. I watched it a year ago and I was kind of like, when I watched it, it was, it, it didn't, there's something about. Um, I was starting to wonder, like, why isn't this? Why? How come this is just hasn't kinda, clicked with everybody? Hasn't or? clicked with everybody. And yeah. I think there's something about the sort of I don't know how to describe it, but it's it's very much of its time and place. Like uh, Jackson's style has since kind of evolved from it. He's still here. He's still, you know, has a a, a score by um, uh, his his composer uh, Peter Desant, Desant uh, who did Meet the Feebles and Dead Alive and Heavenly Creatures. That is kind of um, it's almost kind of a the score is almost kind of like over melodramatic mm. and kind of sarcastic yeah. in a way. Yeah, and you couple that with sort of the crazy camera angles and some of the scatological humor in it that, you know, isn't based on gore, but is based on, you know, some sexual innuendo or anything. And that's kind of off-putting a little bit for maybe some people. I think it's when you get to the latter half that it gets cartoonish and gory and and humans are, you know, (laughs) becoming just props. Um, You know, you you tend to forget about all that. but I think there's something about the style in the first half of the film that makes it hard for viewers to click with it today. I can Back maybe the time, see maybe that, not, but uh, I, I, I don't. I'm not sure it, it translates as well today uh, as it as it did back then. Hmm. Um, and so I, it, it's kind of sad that like it's a it's a movie that we all love, you know, um, you know, and and we. I'll remember where and when we first saw it. It was like, you know, 20 some years ago. Um, But it's kind of a movie that, you know, unfortunately now you really have to seek it out and, and be told about it and you have to find it. Um, Hmm. I think it's also not hmm. only just because like that we, there wasn't a mechanism to just relentlessly promote dead alive or brain dead. Right. In addition to that, I mean, I think it's part of also because of its setting and because of yeah. what the what the premise of. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like what a, a, a friend of a friend of mine who was a uber fan of of British of British rock. He was saying the reason that like the Beatles are uber popular and very well, a lot fewer people got into the Kinks was because the Kinks made albums that were dealing with British concerns. And, right. and, and, huh. and in a similar way, the setup of Dead Alive is very much not of an American type. It's That's, about a guy trying to make his way, have a family, take care of his parents, mm-hmm. and so on. I was going to say, like, I was trying to think of like 
I was I was about to say there's a New Zealand. It's almost too New Zealand yeah. for America. Like there's a cultural sure a cultural say. kind of disconnect. Yes, maybe. Yeah, de- definitely. Right. Yeah, like like Evil Dead is about kids getting the teenagers getting drunk and doing mischief in the woods, doing yeah. very very carefree. But like but Dead Alive is about these actual concerns that teens and it, we're not that much like look at the look at what he does with the baby. The yeah. baby is just so yeah. hilarious, and part of the reason it's so astonishing is because no American horror movie, not even the most degraded ones from Herschel Gordon Lewis or what have you, would ever go in that direction or explore right. those like that territory on an emotional or social level. Or have and, zombies fucking. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And again, this is a movie you need to watch in a theater with a big crowd in order to get the real effect. Because when I watched that baby scene a year ago, I wasn't laughing as much. But there's something about having a communal experience that is just is vital for a film like this. And I, I'm sure, like the prints of this film, are I'm sure are you know faded and 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 you know not a lot of theaters are going to go out of their way to try and acquire a print to show. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably not a DCP of it anywhere. It came out in video really quickly after it came out in theaters. I remember uh, working at a video store and getting the screener almost like two weeks after we got after we went and saw it at the music box. I would think and the music box of horrors must have shown this at some point. I would hope they have, I, but I never see it. I mean, every year they get, you know, those schedules come out. There's two 24-hour horror fests that go on in this city every year in October, and I never see Dead Alive listed in them, and it's crazy to me. Yeah. That, that's horribly unfortunate. But I mean, I'm, I'm just going to differ on the point in that, like, I literally think that, like, it's... It's the movie is way way more accessible in a lot of ways than even stuff such as like Evil Dead because Evil Dead can be like you can sort of almost dismiss it as a whole genre exercise that they that pushes buttons but based on the genre mm-hmm. like when I first saw the baby sequence especially when the baby gets on the playground yeah. I mean obviously just what's happening is so way out of bounds yeah. <laughs> but but watching it recently I'm I'm still in, in I'm still pretty um interested on it because because the main character, he really actually cares about this baby and wants to take care of it. And in his very, very, very um, mistaken attempts to do so, like, there's, there's a kind of a beating heart to it, you know? A kind of a sense of a, like, boy, you know, like, it's really hard to raise yeah. a kid. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, why it's easy to invest in Lionel as a person. I yes, think. exactly. Yes. And, 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 you've, and I feel you, you feel I think he's exploring the same territory as the baby in Eraserhead, but in a much more like much more um, <laughs> anarchic and yet positive spirit than, than, than uh, David Lynch's approach towards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A little more, a little, little more humanistic exactly. approach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And no CGI folks. No. No, uh, this, this is and this, this is 1993. I mean, and, yeah. Uh, th- this is you know this was the summer, the same summer of Jurassic Park uh, is when this film came out, and both bo- both those films I saw multiple times that summer. But and because and both of them just you know you, you you saw that Peter Jackson had that Spielbergian sense of showmanship. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, this was this was definitely it. This is. Now I'm curious. Would you have thought that he would go on to be a big blockbuster director? Saying that you know you had he has that showmanship that like Spielberg had, but seeing something like Dead Alive is and it's the same way with Sam Raimi in the Spider-Man movies. I when I first saw Evil Dead 2, I didn't think he'd be going on to do a big comic book franchise. Well, it wasn't but, as common to be to start out. I mean, I guess well maybe I guess it was, but I mean it wasn't like it is today where. You know, a guy makes an indie breakout hit, and next thing you know, he's directing the next Jurassic Park film. That's yeah. more common today than it was back then. Back True. then, you had to like really grow into that. 
Um, but I knew that whatever Peter Jackson was going to do, I was going to go see it. Clearly, actually, like ironically, the number one reason that like that people are going from indie movies to mega uh, mega budget superhero flicks is from Peter Jackson through his success through like Lord of the Rings. Sure. Previously, it was a matter like it was. I think my my impression is that like you were you had to know you had to make your bones in the studio system to show you could handle such a large a large budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of. We're getting a little off topic, but I mean, I, I think that's a mistake that's happening right now is, you know, um, with the uh, director of uh, – one example is the director of Jurassic World, Colin – Trevor now, I Trevor, Trevor, yeah. 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 Um, you know, is, this is another case of a director who didn't make that transitional film from indie to blockbuster. You mm-hmm. know, you look at Christopher Nolan and he makes Memento, but then he makes – Insomnia, which is tra- is his transition film before he goes into Batman. Right. If he goes from me- Memento right into Batman, there's something lost there. And, that's a good point. Yeah. And you, you and but that's not happening anymore. That's why we're getting a lot of mediocre superhero movies. And I think a lot of that happens because a lot of people are, a lot of these directors are are jumping at the chance to direct a big budget thing. So it'll be great for their career. But what happens is when they get end of the production, the studio. Is handing them note after note after note, and suddenly, like that, that indie sensibility, that personal sensibility, is gone. Yeah, and it's just they've just made a uh, cookie cutter franchise. Yeah, it's like the no director of uh, right. Five Hundred Days of Summer wasn't his next movie, yeah. The Amazing Spider Man. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, another example. But yeah, Mark Mark Webb, ironically enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I think the next Peter Jackson movie is that perfect transition. Oh, the next couple of Peter Jackson movies are like that trend. Those two transition movies from the indie to the blockbuster. Yeah, I will. I mean, I don't think he'll ever make a movie that I love more than his next movie mm-hmm. because it's obviously everybody knows at this point how driven I am to care psychological character studies and just watching kind of people lose their minds more or less. But this is really like one of the best portrayals of an intense friendship that um, becomes so uh, obsessively codependent that, I mean, it's funny because, like, I relate to the idea of becoming attached to one person, but not to that extreme, of course, but just, like, the idea of, like, early on in high school, I was like, I'm thinking with this one friend most of the time. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly just because, okay, we click on this level and this level and this level and this level, whereas some of these other friends, I can only click on one level. And I think that this movie sort of portrays friendship in a fascinating way. We're talking about heavenly creatures. I always do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just that. I want to make sure sure people know. Heavenly Heavenly creatures, creatures, folks. There you go. Um, It is... Just a masterpiece in my mind, and when two of the best performances by um, young actresses of that time, Melanie Linsky's very first role, um, and of course Kate Winslet. What can you say? It's like I think this is still one of her best performances, and you know Linsky, her her sort of transformation is kind of seamless without ever being showy. I think she sort of you, you see the shy introvert early on. Um, suddenly becoming the type of girl just jumps into the lake without hesitation. And I love that um, uh, transformation of her character. And again, incredibly inventive camera work with the fantasy sequences, Um, really interesting motifs, close-ups of, you know, um, people's feet and hands and just really interesting um, choices throughout. And what can you say about the the murder sequence in this movie where... Mm. 
even they even the creators behind all of this have a hard time watching watching it to this day where it's like that first hit and the way the mother makes that sound oh, i God. cringe yeah. yeah i cringe every time but um i just think this like you said this is a perfect transition film and where he really stepped up his game in terms of telling a humanistic again humanistic true story that um really gives insight to human behavior in a fascinating way so yeah, um, this was, I mean, a huge step forward for him as a filmmaker. Uh, I, this completely blew away any, you know, my expectations of him. You know, coming off of Dead Alive, you know, you think, oh, he's going to be making horror movies forever and they'll be great. But he really showed that he knows how to really work with actors. Yeah, um, the first twenty minutes of this film, I think, uh, is so alive. It is imbued with this possibly just everybody involved in it peter jackson uh just saying okay now i'm making a real movie and i'm gonna make a real freaking movie you know i'm gonna this this camera is gonna be alive and it's gonna it's gonna be with these two girls yeah who are, you know enraptured in this new friendship that is beyond friendship it's like blood and you know it takes a helicopter shot to make, convey these emotions and convey these these big feelings that these teenagers are having um and you know and i think there's just uh, and i think um uh kate winslet and melanie linsky are on that same wavelength they're just like we're gonna take these characters and make them our. We are gonna do this. Like we're right. gonna really. We're really making a movie now, and everybody um, was immersed into this. Everybody thing. was immersed with this possibilities yeah. of of given this chance to tell this story in as big and beautiful a way as possible, and you really feel that when you watch this film. That uh, you know, it's 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 and that and that, I think that feeling helps in conveying what these teenagers are really feeling. Um, you know, it's it's all about discovery and the first time and the coming of age and uh, fa- you know falling in love for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Peter Jackson has that same feeling of being able to make a real movie for the first time, and all of that comes through, especially in the first twenty or thirty minutes. I mean, it sustains throughout the film for the most part. Um, one thing that I'm sort of disappointed by is that I mean I watched this movie a lot when it first came out on video and on laserdisc sure. so i've always been known i've always known this one version of the film which i think is like 99 minutes um i don't think i've watched it on dvd since until just recently i think i've i for some reason just never went back to it until just recently on dvd where he added another 10 minutes to the film that's the version i saw and I really think that when I watched it last weekend with this ten minutes that I've never seen before, I was kind of thought I kind of thought, well, this is another case of Peter Jackson not really being his own best self editor. I think the stuff that's in there about uh, her her mom having an affair and her dad lose uh, Kate Winslet's mom having an affair and that's her right. dad losing his job. It just it just kind of dragged down the momentum a little bit, and also the final scene in the film where they're saying goodbye, or you know they're you know crying, and you know the boat is taking off and everything, and then it fades to black. And I remember the way that it was when it first came out was that uh, you saw Kate Winslet on the boat, and it fades out, and you they're still crying and crying, and you hear that loud piercing cry from melanie linsky 
is the thing that closes out the film. And that's black. The screen is black when you hear it, and it's perfect. But now it it he fades in on Melanie Linsky crying, so you see her crying that last cry, and then fades out. And I was like, oh, uh, why? Yeah, I guess I haven't seen the original version as much as you have to I, notice that. But yeah, no, I could I, see the disappointment. With I was kind of like, those oh, choices. I want to get that old version back, but you can't get it anymore. Now. Hmm. It's hmm. only available in this longer version, and I'm kind of disappointed. That's about interesting. That. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Why did it? Why did uh, you think that? Like having it only being from Kate's side, why did you think that worked uh, better for you? I just love the idea. I just remember, and, and again, I, this is how I first saw it. This is how I grew up with it. I can't shake that off. Maybe this was a better version. Maybe I would have. Maybe if I'd only seen this version, I wouldn't be so. I'd be. I wouldn't be so critical. But uh, I just love that it's that it goes black. You're in a black, dark theater when you hear that scream. last piercing scream. He takes the echo out of it, and it's like in your an in your face scream. That is, uh, it, it's just the last thing you hear in the film before the music mm. comes up, mm. and I love that you don't get an image with it. You don't need it, um, and it's it's just perfect. And then you get the code of you know what happens to them later on in life while you hear Mario Lanza uh, singing "Walk On," which is just oh god, it's so <laughs> beautiful. The use and, of yeah, his music is incredible. Yeah, I just I was like, oh, you don't need to see Melanie Linsky crying and hearing it is enough it's perfect that way but i can't so i you know i can't watch it <laughs> without thinking hmm. of that now yeah but i'd love to get that old version back if they put it out but i don't That's think they will because hmm. it's not on the well Blu-ray. it's almost like peter jackson's like ridley scott always adding scenes and tweaking yeah. his version or george and, lucas yeah thing. sure yeah well yeah it's like like what bring right what motivates people to go and like change things on in the director's cut like i mean in in ridley scott's case i've i found personally that like almost all of his movies become dramatically improved when he is able to add in all those extras even if it makes the movie balloon to a a, a large size and, yeah i hear that and, about kingdom of heaven and, which and, i've never Lu- seen and lucas and spielberg are are kind of their director's cuts or their changes have been like very similar in the sense that they've well, they sell out a little bit to me mm-hmm. like they they become more uh, more accommodating of course the infamous case of remaking et so that the they're pointing walkie talkies which and, spielberg has since disowned he doesn't. Yes. He does not abide by that version anymore. Right. Smart. And, and so and so like I'm and so I look at that issue that you were bringing up with the two different and like and 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 I think you're onto something because the two are 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 two different things that Peter Jackson wanted to express that I think has changed since he made like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like like Return of the King had that reputation upon like oh it has 15 different endings, but mm-hmm. of course if you know the story and the books, it's. It, True it to the literally has it's it, the book has even more of these cases because every character has gone through so much that everyone needs to get their own particular conclusion and and he he really I mean did obviously a great service by honoring that book but I feel that maybe that sensibility like kind of um uh, rubbed off a little bit when he makes the director's cut because yeah. if by making it cut to listen li- li- um uh, Melanie's reaction it humanizes her but one of the but but the original version, it makes the cry like it isolates the cry. It makes mm-hmm. it like it gives us a more kind of objective view of how desperate it is. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that makes like Heavenly Creatures a, like kind of a magnificent movie is not just like that it 
like goes so deep into like psychological obsession and how like youthful enthusiasts can get so warped. But it also, I think it has a really interesting perspective on that because yeah. I mean, and I, I'd love to hear what you guys think because my impression is that like the first part until the murder sequence, it's very much on the girl's quote unquote side. It's looking at it from their perspective and there's not a lot of judgment that what they're doing is kind of wrong. But once the murder happens, it's, or to be fair, once the day of the murder happens, then it's almost, to me, it's like the movie works like a light switch. Yeah. You're literally seeing this family. Yeah. You, you know what's going to happen, but you see the family go about its day, and there's a mm-hmm. sense of dread. It's built and oh, built. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, that is definitely true. I mean, when, you know, it's just even the little moments where they're eating, you know, in a pastry shop, and yeah. there's one pastry left, and her, <laughs> the daughter says, you have it, Mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. Treat yourself. Right. And it, but it's just like, oh, man, now don't kill her. You know? Right, she's, I know. Now she's being nice. Don't do it. Oh, God. It's one of those endings, to, or, you know, one of those sequences that you kind of go, oh, you know, if you, even though I've seen this a million times, I don't want it to end up that way. Yeah. Because it's just, it, I mean, that's just it, too, is like he doesn't show judgment for their transgress. Well, I think they, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I feel the same way. It's like the day of the murder. I wouldn't say that all of a sudden Jackson is like, I'm judging these characters, but I think we as an audience are. Um, yeah, right. No, no, it's not It's not something like how um, uh, P.T. Anderson did in Boogie Nights where everything that happens after jo- uh, January 1st, 1980 is all horribly evil and there's a gong of judgment. <laughs> oh. It's no, no, it's but it's but it is more objective. You're just basically like yeah. you're not you're not looking at things from the girl's point of view and you're just like right. become an observer. And it's to me it came across like a big s- splash in the face on it. It's like mm-hmm. all this like wonderful wondrous obsession that the girls were involving in and he engaged me as a as a viewer to it and then then he got me to like hey hey wait, step back this yeah. is what the result of it is yeah. true yeah it's like it, it become, it's like an intoxicating experience to feel what these characters are feeling early on and then when you know that day is coming you change your your, your emotional state kind of changes knowing what's about to happen because for the most part like yeah, I know it's unhealthy what they're experiencing, but at the same time, it's like, I don't want to deprive them of their connection either. I mean, even though it's unhealthy, I feel like as a parent, that's kind of where I would feel really conflicted. Like, they're very easy to just say, nope, you guys can't hang out, period. But at the same time, if it's bringing them so much joy and happiness, even if they are kind of lost in that friendship, I still think it's relatively not normal, but I I don't know. Who's to say? But I really just, I feel for them up until I know what they're about to do. Yeah, and I think, I also think as a film, um, just at the time it came out, 1994, uh, you know, the CGI effects were still pretty new. Uh, but I think yeah. this movie, like, did a really... Uh, I just remember when I first saw it, like, never having seen special effects like this before. The way that when he introduces that, the, the fourth world that mm-hmm. they're talking about, when they're just all of a sudden, like, the lake or the whatever they're in, all of a sudden, like, just manifest into this, like, paradise with yeah. these gigantic butterflies and everything. And just, it was so magnificent. Now, you look at it today, now it's like, yeah, okay, they did CGI. Nah, computer, I still, blah, I'm blah, still blah. pretty much but, in awe by it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, at the time, like, those, those special effects were pretty groundbreaking. And, sure. And, and, you know, coming out of, you know, New Zealand, this little indie film, you know, it mm-hmm. just came out of nowhere. I think it led to a, his own special effects company. Yeah, it was Weta, Weta, Weta. Digital. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and, and it's also, I mean, part of the reason that I think they're, I, I think the effects are really effective today. And I think part of the reason why that is, is because those, they're so tied in on the performance and, yeah. and, 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 he is as ed- and I think Peter Jackson is as adventurous in his direction of the actors in a way. I think this is kind of one of the earlier movies which was not afraid to literally go really, really close on mm-hmm. characters' faces yeah. and mm-hmm. and and give them the time to uh, give them the time for their emotions to go and you know pour 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 through. And I mean it, the audacity of how he directs people like connected to the way he did special effects so that one flows so smoothly yeah. from one to the other for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is the the turning point in which he just has a real command of the medium as a whole, you know. Uh, you know, working with actors, not just not just actors, but like young inexperienced actors and, you know, introducing the world to them and uh you know just directing with real confidence and real flair and just, you know, ready for the big stuff, whatever's next, you know? And the big stuff happened to be the Frighteners. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's an interesting film, because like, I walked into that really excited. Uh, I mean, I think 90... When was this? 96? 96, yeah. Yeah, yeah this was the year I graduated high school, and I was always going to movies with my friend, who and we both loved horror movies, we both loved horror comedies, loved Michael J. Fox, and, you know, even... Um, as the film began, I was like, oh, Robert Zemeckis produced this. I know that name. And uh, if I recall, maybe Alan Silvestri did the score. No, Danny Elfman. Oh, Danny Elfman. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Correct. That's, this is this one of those moments where I edit something I got wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's like uh, the tones don't mesh very well in this movie. Once Jeffrey Combs appears in this... <laughs> <laughs> it's like it goes off the rails and it's like there's even a point during like the interrogation with Jeffrey Combs where suddenly the Dutch angle zoom in on the face comes in right as like and I kind of go oh Peter Jackson's visual flair cool I'm I'm down um, but it's still I don't get really caught up in the story and it sort of feels like a Tim Burton movie gone awry for the most part for me. I There are certain elements of it I like. Um, I think the effects are pretty good overall. Um, but it just it doesn't find that right balance between you know plot and character, effects, and something that you can get emotionally caught up in. As a spectacle, it has moments. But overall, as a horror comedy... It does not succeed, in my opinion. Yeah, I, this feels like a step backwards. Um, in that, uh, you're right. I, I, I think I agree with everything you said 100. Um, percent It's it's Peter Jackson getting his you know dipping his toes in the mainstream Hollywood machine. He's got Rick Baker doing you know a oh, lot right. of the makeup effects. Yeah. Uh, Danny Elfman doing the score, and I think the score is working overtime. Like every Big single time. scene, it, it's wall to wall score. And that is something that Jackson has always been good at, is knowing when and where to use music. But here, it's just it's just nonstop. And it doesn't lend itself to anything. It doesn't lend uh, to the experience of, of really anything. It's kind of an empty film. Um, I think it's a movie where everyone in it is trying really hard, too hard, to be funny. Everyone's trying to steal the show. And it's and you you get up end up with a lot of performances that are uh, over the top, but um, 
you know that there, you can only go so far with that kind of a film. Uh, I think he, you know, is again just doing. Uh, you know, this is a special effects show for him. Yeah. Um, instead of you know using uh, rubber monsters or zombies or you know gross out effects of his early work, he's you know now he's like immersing himself into the digital world and you know trying a lot of Robert Zemeckis like tricks of in in, in uh, encompassing you know these spirits. Uh, interacting with you know props in the real world and everything and moving things around, and that's all you know that's all well and good and on a technic on that technical level it's it's good, but um, I lose interest in the story really really quickly. Um, even though you know there's a very engaging actor at the center of it, Michael oh, J. Course. Fox. This yeah. is his last starring role, um, and you know it's it's kind of hard for me to watch a movie starring Michael J. Fox and not feel you know engaged and uh, you know and and charmed by it. But this one, it just I don't see Peter Jackson's voice or style in it. Even though he and Fran Walsh wrote it and produced, you know, mm-hmm. created it and directed it, I just don't see this. Uh, I don't watch this knowing. Oh, this is obviously a Peter Jackson film. I Except for that Dutch angle, like that's yeah, the one the occasional moment. Dutch angle. Yeah, I go, oh, the there, there he is. He did film it in New Zealand, and sure. I guess that's you know obvious for people who you know have seen his early work and can spot some of the sets and everything and, and locations. But other than that, I mean, it just feels like, uh, like you said, like a Tim Burton movie that's just you know a, a, that is doesn't have the audience in mind when it's when it was made. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a passion project from him. No. This feels like a. I mean, I think he really wanted to make King Kong at this time, but then just he, settled was, on this. He, no, it was he was supposed to make King Kong after this, um, and that that. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, because Universal wanted to do a King Kong remake, but it, then it just fell through, and so he said, well, "All right, I guess I'll go do Lord of the Rings then." And you know, <laughs> I may, really makes me wonder. Well, what? Where on earth did it go wrong that Michael J. Fox's character was less engaging than Lionel from Dead Alive? Yeah. How does how does something like that? How does something like that? Yeah, happen? that's interesting. You know, like uh, like Michael J. Fox by default has this level of uh, of a presence where you kind of want his his uh, spunky character to go and succeed. Like, how does a movie able? To, how is a movie able to like, especially some coming out of Heavenly Creatures, which is just like overflowing with empathy towards his main characters. Mm-hmm. How I mean, like, may, I mean, it does come across to me like it's like almost like a complete like paycheck kind of it you know part of calling the problem, card part of the problem with the film i think is that it takes too long to set up its premise that you don't really mm. know what michael j fox's motivation is uh at first uh, it takes like 15 minutes before you realize oh this is what's going on this is what he's doing he's, he's, he's a using, con man he's a con man he's using dead dead he has this connection with these dead spirits who will help him you know frighten people and make their houses look haunted so he can you know, clean them, quote unquote, and, you know, get a paycheck from them when really he's in control of the whole situation. You don't get that. You don't know that until late in the film. And I think that's why it it doesn't, uh, that's why you don't really quite connect with his character right away mm. because you don't kind of don't trust him, but you don't know why you don't trust him yet. Um, and the fact that if you're going to cast somebody in that kind of role, maybe Michael J. Fox is not the best choice, you know? He might be miscast in this film. 
Um, or it's just not a very well-structured film. It's one of those two. Yeah, things. I think it's more the structure angle for me, but I mean, it, yeah. it's also like, it's it's weird how it, the tones don't work because it's, again, it's in his wheelhouse because it's horror, it's comedy, you know, and it's just him trying out a different genre, like a haunted house kind of movie, but yeah. it's not mm-hmm. successful at all. I find, yeah, I, Colin, I find like what you said on, on both scores, on the structural side and on like, Michael J. Fox's casting is there. I think they're both really uh, notable because, like, like the story kind of has like his character be um, uh, beset upon, and he's kind of like a like a, almost like a Hitchcockian kind of person on the run who desperate to solve a mystery. Whereas, kind of Michael J. Fox's persona is not about like. That he's a person of action, but rather he's a he's a young guy who means well, but he learns life lessons right. along mm-hmm. the way. On his, yeah. and this is it's not a life lesson kind of no. tale, you know. No, and, because then he uh, eventually he is a spirit, and oh, you know, right, that, yeah. the, the the plot just gets he has to go yeah. after Jake Busey, of course, yeah. right? And and, and and yeah, and on the structure, I kind of like from what we've been talking about all those early films. I noticed there's there's kind of like. Again, what I really like about him is his sense of one-upsmanship. He always wants to go and, like, grab more and be able to do more with more things. And, like, the structure on, on Bad Taste and Dead Alive kind of reflect that. They There's a progression as the stories go. As things get wilder and mm-hmm. wilder and wilder. And um, with Heavenly Creatures, he was obviously basing it on a real event. So there was some limitations on it. The Lord of the Rings, obviously, it was an established story that he had to work within those margins. And but I noticed that like with the reveal of who the Grim Reaper is and then where they go later on in the story, that sense of one upsmanship is there. But I don't think it works in that kind of in that kind of story because in the story you want to know the rules or certain rules that can't be broken and but the movies keeps pulling the rug out from under you in that way. Yeah. You know? That's frustrating. That's a frustrating aspect of a lot of horror movies too. I mean it's like you want something to be established, and then they decide, well, let's just change things up. I mean, that's a lot of people's argument for It Follows, but I, yes. I don't I don't necessarily buy that. I, yeah. I still love everything about that movie, but I mean, I could see your point with that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's gr- Obviously, that works quite a bit better with, with Dead Alive, because it's zombies, and zombies are kind of a horse placeholder for, the <laughs> for a shambling evil force, you know? And mm-hmm. so almost everything you can do is up for grabs. Yeah. But when your case of, like, you have a... I, mm, Frighteners is a mystery, so you want to yeah. have the ground rules. What's the mystery? What's going on? And then, then it kind of, the structure works against itself. I do think that's kind of part of the reason why yeah. it, wasn't it, it feels overstuffed yeah. too. I mean, it's yes. it doesn't need to be mm-hmm. two hours long either. Yeah, and uh, and I got the non I got the studio cut, the hour fifty four version from Netflix. You got the director's cut, which was two, two hours and eight minutes. Two hours and eight minutes. Well, what got added? I only saw the ah, that's one. a good question. I don't have a good memory of the original ah. version to really know specifically. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I mean, when I watched it last weekend, I just. It kind of just washed over me after a while. Yeah. For an hour, I was kind of done with it already, but uh, <laughs> I stuck with it. But you know. It's one of the few moments recently where, like an hour in, I did start looking at my phone just to look up details of the movie, and it's like, oh, that's right, i got to keep watching this thing, don't I? <laughs> it just, yeah. I got restless with it, and it's, mm. it's weird to say that with the talent involved with this movie. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's also interesting how much confidence Universal had in the film. They released yeah. it, as, it as a summer film in the middle of July. I mean, I remember. You know, and it just it the reviews were you know putting it politely mixed. Um, there were those who enjoyed it and those who just outright hated it, mm. and uh, it, it did not 
it did not find its audience at the time. Hmm. What, wasn't it supposed to be like some sort of a part of an anthology, some sort of Tales from the Crypt kind of? Yeah, uh, Zemeckis had uh, this idea of he wanted to, uh, he had, I think he had just made the first Tales from the Crypt movie, Demon Knight, and it was, you know, successful enough. And he wanted to, you know, see if any other directors out there had other ideas for more Tales from the Crypt movies. And he got sent the script for The Frighteners. And he thought it was he he loved the idea so much, but he didn't want to make it as a Tales from the Crypt film. He thought it could stand on its own as just a regular hmm. you know film that he was going to throw his weight behind, and that's how that happened. So yeah, it's like an overlong Tales from the Crypt episode, pretty yeah. much. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So what did he do after the Frighteners? Nothing of note, right? <laughs> pretty much. Well, like we said, he was going to do King Kong because uh, you know Universal. In spite of the fact that Frighteners, you know, didn't do very well, at least here in the States, they, you know, wanted to, they were interested in him doing King Kong and because they wanted to, you know, they wanted to do Creature from the Black Lagoon and they wanted to do King Kong and Peter Jackson, King Kong is the film that got him in, you know, into this whole game in the the first place and it's, it's a passion project of his and, um, and so, but it fell through. For some reason, I can't remember why, but uh, you know that left a lot of people who had started making models and designing and and uh, storyboarding and everything just kind of got them all pretty depressed for a while. Uh, but then he got Lord of the Rings off the ground. Never uh, heard of it. It's weird that like, and I know we're we're not going to get too much into it, but it's like, I mean, you're you're you've got you've made three you know underground sort of horror films that play on the midnight circuit. You got Heavenly Creatures. This is kind of an indie hit. It earned him a screenplay Academy Award nomination, um, but that was it. It should have been up for Best Picture, but it wasn't. Um, and then you got the Frighteners, which is kind of a bomb. How do you convince a studio that you're the guy to do a three hundred million dollar <laughs> excellent question on something that has been largely considered unfilmable, um, and and that was written, you know, what uh, sixty years ago, you know, um, but still has you know a moderate fan base of <laughs> geek boys, you know, who still read. Um, I, I don't know how he pulled this off. I mean, just from a pre-production, just from a standpoint of getting a green light, mm-hmm. I have no idea how he managed to pull that off. Yeah, but actually, it's extraordinary. Yeah, actually, I want to I want to pull uh, pull pull back just a bit upon it because, like, from what we're saying on the Frighteners, it's like one of Peter Jackson's secret weapons has to be schmoozing. Oh yeah, he, I mean, yeah. because if you can, like, what we just just talked about, like the. Um, like how the Frighteners was a Tales from the Dark Side. How often does an individual episode get expanded into a movie and get yeah. put into like and and I mean they saw the movies the same movie that audiences did for the most part, right? So what was it that was what was it that got it? Like I think Peter Jackson can sell a really good game. Yeah. And I and um the reason I want to do a step back is right before he did the Frighteners, he did his TV movie in New Zealand. I love it. Pretty remarkable. <laughs> it's his. Uh, Jim, you brought up about like how he had Orson Welles' state of mind. Like that is very much in the old school Orson Welles wheelhouse. It's a film called um, Forgotten, For- Silver. Forgotten Silver. Forgotten um, Silver. Um, do you, do you want to describe what it's? It's it's really it's something very special in that it's a mockumentary um, about a filmmaker that was essentially forgotten and. He uncovers all these old canisters that were, you know, buried practically, and 
he basically goes through all these film reels and we discover it's uh, the result of a director early on in like the D.W. Griffith era, and I think his name is Colin, Colin McKenzie, yes. and he uh, has made all these really um, independent films way back when. And you sort of get to see uh, like some behind the scenes, um, that reels of stuff, and just like a lot of silent films, essentially, that he made. And you have a lot of interesting cameos that I don't want to give away because I think people need to track this down and it's kind of hard to find. But it's just, it's got some surprises in there that I was not expecting. But Peter Jackson sold this so well, you know, that people bought it. Like, people actually thought this was a real filmmaker. Um, in New Zealand. So they all wanted to know more about Colin McKenzie and, like, you know, look him up and find his actual work. <laughs> like, oh, he's restoring this, like Scorsese, apparently. Um, and yeah, it has this right balance of fantasy and reality and a love of film, kind of like what Scorsese did with Hugo, maybe. But, you know, this is more the mockumentary version of that. Yeah, it is It is dead on. Like, they literally would, like, take footage and literally drag it around yeah. uh, on the ground to be able to duplicate the exact kind of scratches that, that, a, that a film of the silent era would do. Woody Allen did that with Zelig. Also. Yeah. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and he, he does really, really faithful recreations of, like, not just, like, um, uh, not just, like, old Lumiere Brothers level films but Good also yeah. and then near the end you literally get to a, like a Cecil DeMille kind of epic through it right <laughs> and and part of the reason that it works so well is that he actually has testimonials from people like Leonard Maltin and especially <laughs> especially Harvey Weinstein who yep. goes on at length about what a legendary filmmaker this uh, Colin McKenzie character is and don't give away too many of the cameos though cuz i think it's sweet to you know find that out Yes. Yes, but I, 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 but I bring, I bring <laughs> it up exciting, that, like though. his ability to go to Hollywood and immediately have a person of that stature do yeah. his like his crazy New Zealand made for TV movie that shows his mm-hmm. his networking skills are, oh, yeah. are something his, special. Yeah, I mean his 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 skills as a as a director and a, as a people person. Uh, yeah, is I can see that. Clear when you watch. A lot of the documentaries on Lord of the Rings and, and King Kong, like people just love working for him. Yeah, you like, want to give this guy a hug. You know, yeah, he's very he's, down to earth. He's just very like you watch or down to Middle Earth. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> you, you watch footage of him working on Lord of the Rings movies, and he's just very calm, very focused, very mm-hmm. collected. And it's like, dude, you're and production on one movie, post production on another movie and pre production on another movie at the same time these three hour epics I mean you know like how are you not losing your mind right now mm-hmm. and it's just you know he's it's just that's it's what he's born to do you know yeah it's, it's yeah. In his blood um, I, I'll just say like two things on the Lord of the Rings was is that like one is that like I think it's successful in the same kind of way that something like the Avengers is successful for the same reason because I think I think Peter Jackson brought this this double characteristic of being very honored toward the source material taking it seriously not treating it as like frivolity for kids or teens but like saying this is a serious story but then he also imbues it with a level of wit and um and creativity in terms of like making mm-hmm. really interesting choices in in a very in a whole series of ways 
the the series actually does improve in uh, upon Tolkien's original story, cutting a lot of dead parts. That's very to it, rare. Adding in, and and the the adding in like relationships on on Aragorn's side, for example. So it has that wonderful combination that fans can really appreciate what he gives to it, and people who want like a, a, a movie to work on the movie's own terms. Also, they get they get both groups get, get a sense from watching that film. That, that he cares about both, and he's will and he's willing to go the extra mile and beyond to give it to the audience. Yeah, I mean, I um, we'll move on. Don't worry. I know you didn't want to. Get no, it's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. We touch. But I think it. one of the reasons why you invited me on this podcast for this director is that it's. I I think that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the best film i've seen in that decade in the 2000s i remember yeah yeah this was this was when we made our top 20 best of the decade list the lord of the rings trilogy was number one for me um Hmm. i think this is uh this is what filmmaking is all about this is why i go to movies this is every frame of these movies uh has a filmmaker's passion behind it um and i just think it's it works as a nine-hour film with a three-act structure. I mean, The Return of the King is as great a third act of a movie as you can imagine. Uh, the special effects went, you know, even further. They kept, the, they kept, they kept, the special effects kept getting better and better with each film. I mean, you know, Gollum was a game-changer in, yeah. in Two Towers, and then all the stuff at, uh, you know, all the battle scenes in, in Return of the King. I mean, that was, that, that changed everything. Everybody, suddenly you got all these directors trying to recreate those sequences um, and, you know, not doing nearly as good a job. And I don't care that Return of the King has nine endings. I want nine, you know, I put a lot of investment into these characters. <laughs> I want, I don't care that it takes forever for Return of the King to end. I don't want an abrupt, you know, ending, uh, you know, with, with just, you know, everybody walking into the sunset together. I want, I want us, you know, I love the way it ends. See, I've always felt like these movies were universally beloved. And then it was like, like around when I saw Clerks 2 and Kevin Smith is making fun of them. And I thought, like, Kevin Smith? I figured he'd be a diehard Tolkien fan. Why doesn't he like these movies? He's like, oh, they're just walking around. It's very boring. It's too long. And I'm just like, I, I didn't feel that way when I was watching these things, man. I, I know people rag against it now, but it seemed like everybody at the time was kind of pro Lord of the Rings. Well, I, for Kevin Smith, uh, I can pro- I can see it as probably at the same time these Lord of the Rings movies were capturing everybody's imagination and everyone it was like the new Star Wars. Well, the prequels yeah. were being made at the same time and everyone was kind of ragging on the prequels. That's true. And you you know Kevin Smith isn't going to have that. So right, right. I think that's what's going on there. Yeah, no, I I certainly really like these movies, but I'm I'm a weirdo. I've only seen them once in the theater. Um, <laughs> I need to revisit them, and it's like nowadays. Okay, I just binge watched what a, a, a TV show for ten hours. I think I can do that with the series again, just to sort of refresh my memory because I don't like these types of. I don't. I'm not a big fantasy sword and sandals kind of guy, or I mean, I just this type of genre. I mean, people are obsessed with Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I can't get into it. I try. 
because I want to be into it because it's like a pop cultural uh, staple right now, but I can't. I I, I like Lord, I, I like Game of Thrones, but I've, I've since kind of given up on it because I need every time every new season requires like a forty five minute refresher of what's going on. I bet I can't figure it out. You know, right? At the it's top. too dense. It seems like it's I would it, say I would say if you're gonna do <laughs> if you're gonna watch Lord of the Rings again, I think the expanded editions of of Fellowship and Two Towers are worth watching. I don't like the expanded edition of Return of the King. Interesting. I think it's, okay. I think it. Yeah, I think he he shows way too much. I think it, the momentum gets bogged down, and this is part of his problem as an editor. And we're going to mention this with his next film too. Is that, uh, or at least his his, his instincts as an editor uh, with his expanded editions. I just don't think they work. I think I think the studio cuts are always better than the expanded editions. Interesting of, of, of his films, mm. but but I really get caught up in the relationship between Frodo and Sam. Yeah, you know it's beautiful. it's got such a huge emotional wallop, and yeah, I didn't feel like you know people said those things about Return of the King. I didn't feel that way at all. Um, you know, it's funny like the, the year that came out, it was like I had such huge emotional experiences with Big Fish because my dad had passed away and then all the real girls because I'd gotten out of a relationship that lasted three years and then Return of the King that made me cry I was just like I was always crying at the movies in 2003 2003 was a good year yeah it really was Um, so you know let's move on yeah Uh, so King Kong um, you know I mean Lord of the Rings was a passion project for him King Kong was another passion project for him now here's one where I feel it's too long Okay, that's that's like that's my main criticism of the film. I mean, maybe a couple performances are a little <laughs> off, but overall, I still like it. I I rewatched it again last night, and I didn't get restless with this. I I mean, maybe you could have trimmed a couple of things here and there, but when you, I I just I adore Naomi Watts. I think she's a fantastic actress, and she really pulls it off. Like she is so convincing with. A special effect, essentially, you know, and well, I mean, Andy Serkis is there, of course, to you know fill in that uh, you know the, the, the actual King Kong character. But I, I don't know. I again, I get caught up in the emotion of it all, the spectacle. I think it's really well done, and I know people for some reason are kind of cold on this now, uh, and I don't know if it's just a simple case of backlash or if there's specific reasons. But I, I would, you know, I just say that maybe uh, a couple of instances. I'm like, yeah. It didn't need to be three hours, but I also don't get restless with it. So I, I'm still pro King Kong, um, even though I, I happen to know a lot of friends who aren't. But I don't know. I just, I just go with this one. I just I enjoy it, and you can tell it was a passion project, unlike something like The Frighteners. Yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, yeah, it's a pa- it's a passion project, but then it also shows like the particular passions that Peter Jackson had for it. I mean. And his passions are very, very congruent to the original King Kong. The thing yeah. that everyone, no one cares what Carl Denham is doing in the original Kong. Nobody, nobody cares about the the male love interest to Fay Ray in the movie. They care about Kong as a character, and they care about mm-hmm. that that that's very, very weird relationship that is um that that uh, Kong and Fay Ray have, and and how that transverses the the different continents, um and. He, um, 
Peter Jackson's able to deliver the same level of like enthusiasm towards that, but then like yes, the editing does take a toll, and that everything is about maybe what twenty percent, thirty percent more than it needs to be. Like I mean, yeah, I I mean I guess I give him credit for trying with the Jack Black's uh, uh, denim character. Doesn't really it doesn't really work. You don't don't end up caring about him. You don't end up caring about Adrian Brody that Adrian Brody that much. But my yeah. God, when you literally have Naomi Watts and Kong, every one of those is gold to me. Right. Absolute, absolute gold. That fight that Kong has between the two uh, T-Rexes is one of the best choreographed and delivered like uh, slugfests of all time. There's under- <laughs> I don't think there's any Godzilla movie that's, that can ma- that's matched it. Um, just like the, the, the scene where Naomi is dancing to just try and, and engage it. That... Uh. that Incredibly amazing decision in New York with the ice rink. Yeah, yeah. I mean Beautiful. that's that is like that same spirit that I think imbued his his previous trilogy. Just just crystallized mm-hmm. to think of literally having an ice capades. Yeah, those two yeah. is and, it's and so have charming. it come off. It feels romantic. <laughs> yeah, right, one hundred percent. And and then and 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 I also even really like the the there's a sequence halfway through where the parties are beset upon in Skull Island by some bugs. It goes oh on, yeah, it goes on quite a bit. But like, mm. but I was really impressed by like how the music is not meant to be. It's not a a blaring trumpet score. Oh. It's very somber. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's almost it's like great some, score. Yeah, it's like yes, the 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 turn it made is really really interesting. It's like like that the like the the like the effect was like had affected a young Peter Jackson in a darker way than like just sort of a rabble sort of a rabble rousing manner, you know? Yeah. And it was like and I almost I'm gonna say it. It felt like an almost Herzog Werner Herzog level vibe to it of like the jungle uh-huh. is reclaiming these people and it's kind of like feels like more of a natural progression than some sort of like, oh my god, they have to attack like a raiders, like we have to yeah. like, we have to get away, da 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 you know? Yeah. yeah. You guys see what I'm you know I do, yeah, yeah. I I hadn't thought of that, but that's an interesting point. Uh, comparing this to Herzog a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm well, with I'm <laughs> I'm with you a little bit though me. on uh on Jack Flack and Adrian Brody, I'm not as crazy about them. Are See, you? I, I I I love the casting in this movie. I think Jack Black is terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do. I think he's I think he's a lot of fun to watch because it's a real performance from him. Uh, and so kind of that's first true. Time it's not really, Jack Black, the goofy guy. That's right. Um, I yeah. mean, I think I think Jack Black really understands that what he's he's really playing Peter Jackson. Um, I think mm. I think this is Peter Jackson's most personal film and probably his most autobiographical with that character. I mean, all the early <laughs> stuff where he's he's you know fighting with the studios and you know they're watching cuts of his his new film. And, yeah, and, uh, watching nervously <laughs> in the back row and and the, and the executives are like scratching their necks oh. and getting fidgety. And I'm sure like that that's got to come from a personal place oh, for Peter Jackson. And and <laughs> that's and, a sweet way of looking at it. And Jack Black, I mean I mean that character is a showman. Like he is that PT Barnum like here's Kong, you know, that like this is a guy who is out to thrill an audience by showing them things they've never seen before. That's why he's going to go out of his way and find this island and film there and, you know, really deliver the goods. That's Peter Jackson all over. And I think um, you know that uh, Jack Black does a wonderful job of conveying that kind of hmm. that that kind of director, that Cecil B. DeMille, bigger than life uh, guy who can you know con his way into making any kind of movie he wants to make. Um, 
So I think I think the casting is 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 wonderful, and I and I I think Adrian Brody is really charming in this movie. I think his, uh, I think that's I think that's also a good casting call right there. I think I think he's having a lot of fun. I think everybody in this movie is really well cast. I don't I don't have a problem with anybody in this film. Um, I think that uh, th- this was my also my favorite film of two thousand five as well. Uh, this was kind of a, a for me. This was. This movie kind of saved me as far as being a film critic goes. Oh, that's I was, right. Yeah. I was having the worst, you were jaded a little I bit. I was having the worst year of my life, and I was not enjoying, I was not liking movies very much that year. 2005 was not a great year for films, and I was like, I was towards the end of the year, I was like, this is this might be my last year as a film critic because this is this is this has been this, there's nothing this year that has really inspired me to keep going. And then I saw went to the critic screening of King Kong, and I was like, okay, good, <laughs> I, I, I can keep going now because this was like exactly what I needed. This was the adrenaline rush. This was the excitement. This was the the love of of cinema that I've been waiting to see. I mean, he really loves this this story. He really loves... I mean, this is also one of the best period pieces I've ever seen. The way he brings New York yeah. to life, Depression-era New York, is, is exquisite. I mean, it is like the finest detail... All the way at the you know uh, you know in the deep distance that you can't even see, but you know there's there's lo- great love and attention to detail in every single aspect of every shot of New York uh, in this film, and it is uh, really just captivating, uh, I, and it's exciting as hell. I mean, all the stuff that you see in Return of the King, all the all the great battle sequences are now like just basically take over for the last 90 minutes of this film right uh it's three hours but man it flies by i i for me the only thing i will say is that uh for as far as negatives uh, in a way is that i when i watched this this week uh i watched it on blu-ray and i watched it through a projector that i you know i blew up on my wall and it's big and beautiful and you guys have seen it but um I will say that some of the special effects don't quite hold up um, mm. when watched that way on Blu-ray on a big, big blown-up image. Uh, you can kind of see some of the cracks, um, you know, like with especially just scenes with the humans in the same space as the characters, like during the uh, you know that Brontosaurus stampede. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you can see the you know that. It, it just doesn't look as smooth as it did when I saw it on celluloid back in 2005. And maybe Blu-ray, watching Blu-ray uh, is not always the best idea for... A, they do bring out imperfections. They do. And, they, yeah. and I think that's what happened when I watched this. It was <laughs> a little... It, it brought out the imperfections of the special effects, um, which they were... I mean, they were under the gun when they made this film. I mean, they went right from the product, you know, Return of the King, right straight straight into production on King Kong and they were constantly racing the clock to make this film um, after, you know, and they were all pretty exhausted after doing Lord of the Rings. And then, you know, now we're going to make another three hour epic. Um, So in all fairness to them, that's, you know, that may have been what happened, but 
I still think this is a magnificent film that is uh, for film that that is for movie lovers. I mean, even the, the opening and closing credits, the way it's presented as this you know bigger than life film that is in love with the modern technology and the old school way yeah. of, of telling stories and everything. I think this is clearly the movie Peter Jackson was born to make. I, I'm going to ask a heretical question for you guys. Then, which is the better Kong? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's I. I'm more likely to rewatch the original, but that's only because of length, really. I mean, I I certainly love Peter Jackson's version, and I think that I will grow to love it more and more as I rewatch it. It's not something like I, I, you know, kind of go, oh, I don't know if I'm looking forward to rewatching this one. But I, I, it's a tough call. But I, I think I've seen the original more, but. Uh, well, I mean, a, they're both out to accomplish different things. Sure, I yeah. Mean, the first King Kong was set out to accomplish a feat of special effects that hadn't really been done before. Correct. And it accomplished it, you know, tenfold. It's a, it's a remarkable thing to go back and watch the original King Kong mm-hmm. and knowing, you know, what it did, the influence it had. And so it's a, it's a different experience from watching Peter Jackson, who is basically just kind of giving his you know take as a fan of that film uh you're sort of you know it's it's through his eyes that we're seeing the same story and but he is more nostalgic for it than you know uh than the original one which isn't nostalgic of anything it was groundbreaking it Mm -hmm. hadn't been done before so Mm -hmm. it's hard to say which is better because they're both out to accomplish different things but they both accomplished what they set out to accomplish Mm -hmm. yeah that's you know, I'm that's evading a good answer. an answer, but <laughs> that's my answer. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, I, I agree. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it very well, definitely, it very well, might not be an easy question. Like, I mean, I for me, it's like you know, you have to always, of course, do the cave at that. Hey, you know what? The uh, Jackson's Kong would never have existed without the earlier Kong. Right. Henceforth, you got to give that some credit there. But that being said, I kind of have to. I would give the edge to the Peter Jackson's Kong because. Like a lot of the appeal of a lot of the appeal of the early Kong is that when you just is that you as a as a disinterested movie enthusiast know all the effort all the strings mm-hmm. that were required to to um to yeah. make that and just so when you see that like there's several moments in the movie where you can literally see the thumbprint that was used to make the impression on on Kong's forehead and so you really appreciate it on that level on like a Ray Harryhausen like level of movie creativity for mm-hmm. its own sake. But I think I think Jackson's Kong succeeds on that case, like how it explodes the Uncanny Valley. It's completely believable about the Kong in that environment. But then also, I think he just succeeds as actually being a, a robust character in his own right, with like yeah. with actual feelings and a and a and, and there's such a pathos to his to his demise. Spoiler alert for a hundred year old movie the, uh, that that like that that gets bring out just from his the way his eyes just react to looking at uh, uh, Naomi mm-hmm. and like and so I mean I'm just I think it's successful in more levels than the original one and that's where I would give it the edge. Yeah, good call. Yeah, sure. And Andy Circus, God bless him, right? He, he should get an honorary Oscar for being a ground. I think they used to give an Oscar in the early days for groundbreaking t- 
technique or groundbreaking technology, and Circus definitely deserves it. He is pushing the boundaries right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I think someday that is, that is in his future. It has to be because, I mean, with this and, you know, Gollum, and then you got the Planet of the Apes movies. and Was that with BFG? Did he do BFG? Oh, no, that was Mark Rylance. Right? Uh, yeah, no, I think that was motion capture with Mark Rylance. Right, right, but, right. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, and I... And and Star Wars, uh, oh. know, playing Snoke with the mm-hmm. in Star Wars. I mean, he's definitely brought it to a yeah. real fine artistic level. Absolutely. Now, probably the most disappointed I've been with a Peter Jackson movie is the last one we'll be talking about, and that's an adaptation of a huge novel that I, when I was working at a library, that was always out and everybody wanted it. it was on reserve constantly, and that was The Lovely Bones, mm-hmm. and. I walked into this very excited because the trailer sold it to me as like, well, maybe he's going back to heavenly creatures territory here and, you know, tackling a character study slash, um, you know, I don't want to say like psychological thriller, but there's, I just didn't know what to make of it because I hadn't read the book and I was very excited for it and I liked the cast. Um, but yeah, it opens up with one of my favorite Brian Eno pieces, which is something I've fallen asleep to because it's just one of the most purely um, calming piano sounds that I've ever heard. And when it opened, I was like, oh man, I've always wanted to use that in one of my own movies. <laughs> but he did it beautifully just to open the film, along with, like, I think his use of music in this is really good. Some Cocktoo Twins and some, like, you know, uh, 70s era pop rock and stuff. But I. I, as this movie goes on, I just completely feel like he he lost um, control of you know the story in general because it just it sort of meanders and the his idea of the afterlife isn't that interesting at all. Um, and you know as you know as creepy as Stanley Tucci is in this film, I, I mean he, I think he was nominated for it even he was yeah. and like. Most of the um, acting here is pretty uh, forgettable. Mark Wahlberg and Rachel Weisz, for that matter. I and you know I think Mark Wahlberg can be good in certain instances, and I always love Rachel Weisz. But I don't know. I, I, I shrug this movie off entirely. Even upon a rewatch, I try to pick up on okay, what are the strengths here? And I just I don't feel anything while watching this movie. And it's shocking, given the material and the fact that this is the same director of Heavenly Creatures. Was it something that that impression that came across to you like right away, or was there a point halfway through well, where you felt like the energy was deflating? Yeah, I felt yeah more more along that line where it's just like ah man, I just I'm not yeah the, it's deflation. You can sort of look at it that way for sure, but um, yeah, I just don't know why this movie didn't quite click with again the level of talent involved but also the the material seemed to be oh maybe it's something that was difficult to adapt perhaps um i'm assuming it's probably from the girl's perspective i haven't read the book but i mean it just seems like it could be one of those stories that would be from a first person narrative um yeah and i just i think mark Wahlberg's pretty bad in this um not very convincing as the father uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's a huge miss, and like I said, there's certainly things about it that you can appreciate, but I just kind of... It's one of those movies I'm so disappointed to say I don't like because I want it to so bad. Yeah, I uh, I have read the book, and you're right. It, it, it is told from uh, her perspective, uh, the girl played by... Uh, Shirsha Ronan. Shirsha Ronan. Um, and, you know, it, it's told from the point of view of a dead person. And um, 
I I listen. I shouldn't say I read. I listened to the audiobook a couple times. Especially, I, I will listen to it again before the film came out to get myself excited. And um, you know, so it was interesting to just kind of listen to it and be like, "Wow, how's he going to film this scene? How's he going to do this? How's he going to convey all that?" And um, and I'm with you. I th- but I think there are. Um, this is one of the most frustrating films ever. Because I think there's so much greatness in it, and yet it not, and none of it works. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, you know, just forget about it, the adaptation part. It is, um, I mean, cinematically, it's, the, you know, the camera here is just as alive and involved as it was with Heavenly Creatures. You can tell he's trying to go for that same kind of tone. And, um, and... It just doesn't. I think it's over stylized. It's stylized to the point mm-hmm. where he sort of makes this miscalculation that if he throws in a lot of stylistic flourishes, a lot of slow mo, and a lot of um, you know uh, special effects, that that will be enough to connect with the audience. And it just doesn't work. That it has way. the opposite effect. It's the, it has the opposite effect. Yeah. And um, you know in. Some of the, the the fantasy sequences of the afterlife in any other movie in any other context these are some of the most beautiful images I've ever seen in any film and I cry when I watch it that it's just stunningly beautifully realized like some, the best special effects that Weta has ever done and yet it doesn't work because it's presenting it as this sort of like. Um, you know, she gets you know basically raped and murdered, but it's all great because she's in this beautiful afterlife where she gets to have these live out these teenage fantasies of being you know glamorous and mm-hmm. and it's like, but wait a minute, what are we saying here? Wait a minute, are you saying that it was a good thing she was raped and murdered? Because that's kind of the feeling that I'm getting from watching this, and that doesn't. Yeah, it's a work. weird feeling. It is very weird feeling. That's like the movie is is uh, and I uh, is so. It odds with itself yeah. in terms of its tone because Stanley Tucci, I think, is they spend way too much time with that character, and that um, you know it's there's way too much. Uh, I think he overdoes it on the creepiness. I think I think Tucci's look is just a little too obvious to be interesting. I love the shots from the from the point of view of the dollhouse when we're seeing you know Stanley Tucci walking around outside yeah. his dollhouse that he's created. It's a beautiful visual metaphor, but um, but it's just I think he lingers too long on that character that it cha- it alters the tone of the film to the point where you're not like there's you're not enchanted by anything that Cersei Ronan is is seeing in the afterlife. You're just kind of more like, well, wait a minute, shouldn't you be angry and sad? I mean, there's a whole sequence towards the end of the film where she's finally feels angry about what's happened. And I feel like that scene needs to come way earlier. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. And the movie also just really goes off the rails when Susan Sarandon's character comes into the house and kind of takes over. And, uh, and I was like, <laughs> my God, the airdrop from Stepmom. Oh, right. No, it's, it's more like Emily Gilmore from Gilmore Girls. Like she's playing that character. Yeah. And it just. Uh, totally it, so off. A movie about grief does not need a montage sequence put to. Uh, what's that long tall woman in a black dress yeah that's true that's true yeah Um, like 
It just it's a misstep. It's a huge misstep, and you know all the stuff about the mom, uh, you know, leaving the family to go work in the you know fields and everything. It it works in the book. It does not work here. This is a case. This is, this is a, a, a textbook case of a really good book that is just unfilmable. Hmm. Um, I don't think that Peter Jackson made the case that this would this novel, this very interesting, very personal and very emotional novel could be made into a movie that he really wanted to make. I'm still um, going to read that at some point. Yeah. It's a really interesting book. I think you'd like it. Okay. I mean, uh, like I have not read the book myself, so I'm super intrigued by like, what do you think is like the main or one of the main things that the book comes across the feeling or, or theme that the book is about that you think Peter Jackson like failed to do in the movie. I think it's the theme of, isolation and loneliness on the other side i think it's the th- it's it's this feeling of when you read it or at least when i read it i should say i was going through something very personal and very i won't get too far into it but it clicked with me as a book because it was about somebody who who didn't exist anymore and knew it and felt it and I think that's why it resonated with me at the time. And I think that's the way, I think that's what I was waiting for Peter Jackson to convey with this film is that, is that feeling of, you know, what if you, when you die, you really feel dead (laughs) to everyone. And that just completely alters your psychology and alters your, you know, your, 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 view of yourself and you know that feeling of not hmm. being uh around in the world it's hard to it's hard to art, it's hard to articulate it's an interesting uh, theme that's and, for but sure it, but i think jackson got way too caught up in the the other world and yeah and, and bringing it to life in a way that you know he loves to do and is able to do in an, in another film like heavenly creatures but he makes it appealing in a way. He makes it appealing in a way at a, at a time in the story when it shouldn't be appealing. Right. Uh, it's too much too soon with some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the book was, you know, really about that side of it too much. It's interesting that this came out the same year uh, as um, Avatar and Robert Zemeckis' A Christmas Carol, because these are three directors. James Cameron, Peter Jackson, Robert Zemeckis, who are pioneers in the world of special effects. They are, you know, game changers in the world of film. Everything they've done, they've always strived to push the boundaries of special effects and push the limits of what you can do with a film. But these are three films where they all three, these directors, fumbled in terms of their abilities to tell stories. I think they've all got just way too carried away with the visuals and and really just kind of dropped the ball. Didn't hurt Avatar. Because that movie went on to make billions, um, but I think there's, I think these are, you know, they're all three of these directors made their weakest film that year. Yeah, they all lacked an emotional component to really grab you. Yeah, and I felt like, well, good aesthetics, interesting visuals. I, th- I could certainly see the awe of seeing something like Avatar on the big screen, but I just didn't give a damn about what was going on. I just thought like, oh, that's cool, yeah. and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, Lovely Bones is it's thematically muddled throughout yeah. the whole thing. You're not really quite sure what 
he's going for, what you're supposed to get out of it. I disagree with the casting, though. I think the, I think the movie is well cast. I think Wahlberg is okay. Um, I don't think Wahlberg is that bad. Man. Yeah, no, he. I I think he is not just that bad. I think he's worse. I think he is. <laughs> I think he's not. I don't think of him as an actor whatsoever. He is a vibe that you airdrop in the movie of a of a doltish adultish but well meaning presence who goes to violence way too quick. He's he's really good at evoking that, but like, but um. But in so many scenes in uh, the Lovely Bones where he's required to like you know Emotion. show some no yeah. no when he actually I think when he cr- when he's crying or when he's like in emotion I think he can he gets it but it's when he has consideration you know like mm. there's a really lo- lovely moment where he's looking at a candle in a windowsill and the reflection of the candle is moving and he's staring at it but the impression you get out of watching him is not that like oh my god something magical is happening or maybe there's touching another world but it's more like oh wow how are candles working like that and <laughs> and I mean eventually it descends to like just sheer like uh, to me his performance just ended up like developing to like sheer mystery science levels of lunacy such that when he oh it's not like, the happening bad well there's one part where he like hides behind a tree and so I literally was thinking oh, <laughs> oh well. hi tree we're on the same side now right <laughs> well I, it, it, I mean that's another thing I think that Jackson fails to do with this is convince the audience that these characters understand that it's the guy across the street they need to keep an eye on. Um, I don't buy it. Like I don't buy that all of a sudden they instinctively know that that's the guy. Even though yeah. Saoirse Ronan is kind of used in a way to sort of deliver that message to them either psychically or however you know spiritually or whatever but it just doesn't work it just doesn't work as narrative um, yeah and i don't think that's Wahlberg's fault i don't think that's the the girl who plays the daughter uh i forgot her name um uh, i don't think it's her fault i just i think it's just i think it's just poor writing well it's it's like um i, I look yeah, i look at what you're how you're describing the uh, colin how you're describing like the sensibility of the book the kind of sense that it's about like loneliness and isolation and like the sense about how your dislocation can go and like change you and it comes across that like maybe while certain elements like very much fit like the heavenly creatures success that peter jackson did that he's kind of in, in another way like the wrong guy to look at that particular kind of subject yeah. because all of his movies up to that point are thrill wave how alive they are about how their characters take action and strive for things and like and and, and go and, for and multiple characters too like yes. everybody you know, like mm-hmm. none of his movies are about loneliness they're all populated with multiple characters who have to you know do you know have to advance the story exactly and like the two girls in heavenly creatures what, what the movie comes alive by how much they intensely love and care yeah. for each other and and what they feel they're going to do about it even if it is in the even if it is in the fantasy world so i think that sensibility is something that like like in the lovely bones he wasn't able i don't even know if he's a, a director who's capable of grasping it at least at this point something like i'm going to throw a crazy choice out there but perhaps like uh, Sofia Coppola might have been mm. a lot more successful. That would have been because, an interesting choice. Because or her- Todd Salons. <laughs> Salons? He'd uh, probably make it a little more, uh, I don't know what the word is. He would not be good. <laughs> well, I mean, he, I think his movies yeah. captured loneliness uh, with some characters, you know, like sure. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Happiness, uh, but in a more creepy... Uh, <laughs> I would say the other Todd, Todd Haynes would be Yeah, good. Todd Haynes Why? would be great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Definitely. he's so good at like showing people trapped by their surroundings, which mm-hmm. would like... 
like right in the in the heaven scenes they're very liberating there's yeah. like there they there's like a sequence early on where where her and another visitor to this realm are having so much fun frolicking yeah. around the field you halfway expect Terrence Malick is going to show up to film it um and and that tone does not like right, it totally puts at odds with the idea that like yeah. that this is something to be that that, that the girls having an un, had an unpleasant experience and it and it completely right under yeah it undercuts the whatever the the message the movie was trying to do at that point, but but in general I actually I'm very much in agreement with you that there is moments of absolute stunning greatness in this film mm-hmm. that are just just did not put an arrangement that would make that satisfies an audience yeah i'll tell you two that really really work for me is that like he is like the way he's he's able to evoke things in the when he gets to the 70s sensibility there's a kind mm-hmm. of a like there's cases of like just looking over the long field and mm-hmm. like there's one shot of like of of ronan moving one direction and another woman moving in another direction over a desolate cornfield which just gets up powerful emotional message and and there's a there's a really interesting theme going on about how like about how people are being trapped in general and about how the different people in society are trying to trap this girl in a different into different roles like you know like the father for all his well-meaningness i think it's not a coincidence that he puts the the ships in bottles and Mm -hmm. and the and the murderer Hmm. has this like underground like underground lair which like not only like Ugh, is yeah. it does a trapman theme but also gives a kind of a fable like kind of a fable like quality yeah. right and there's a really interesting scene where the detective is looking with him uh, talking with the murderer and they're looking through the doors of the dollhouse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah, so yeah. it's the idea of like what's controlling who what's built around who and i think like the one of the themes of the lovely bones was about how the bones are actually a structure of the life that everyone lived around her. And I think like through use of like clever use of the field and the sinkhole and the dollhouse and the um and and the the, the house, which just like Inception or Five Hundred Days of not five hundred days of summer, but Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is brilliant at how it changes setting, like in a yeah. totally natural way. That was very st- much so stunning. Yeah. Like, I mean it 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 briefly glimpses on this moment and you can see the potential greatness of what this could have been which that's makes what it, makes it very frustrating yes yeah. makes it very it's, disappointing yeah. yeah it's like you you see the moments like that that should have been i mean they are awe-inspiring when you see them but not in the context of the story and that's what's really disappointing yeah. hearing you guys talk about it is far more interesting than watching the movie <laughs> <laughs> because it's like yeah, I certainly want to read the book now because the, those themes are very interesting to me. And the idea of like a Sofia Coppola taking on this material with the same cast, maybe it would have been great. Maybe you know, yeah. and, and it's hard to know now. And even a young, <laughs> even a young Ronan has like she's even then. I think she may be may surpass eventually surpass Kate Winslet in terms of her acting ability, if not already. Because like from when I see her in the movie, like. She has that silent screen ability where emotions can just pour out of her face, even when she's barely moving. Yeah, yeah. like it's so br- is brought about just by looking at her. Yeah, yeah, very it, expressive eyes too. Yes, <laughs> yeah, her pupils, the, the way her pupils are dilated, can make a clinic to itself. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'm she, glad you mentioned Brian Eno. I mean, any director <sighs> who yeah. samples as much Eno as as Peter Jackson does in this movie, I mean, it's. Uh, you know, no movie can be all bad if it's got all. Yeah, know, like me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Right, and it's that same that piece of music is in uh, that that movie and this movie and at the end of uh, the end of the tour also. Uh, oh right, yeah. And I just I think the last 
few minutes of this movie are just stunning. I, mean, mm-hmm. I was I was crying at the end of this movie, but I was like, I this is not a good movie. What what this is? Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> That's so because it's also about capturing a moment that she's been she's been that's something that she's been concerned about her whole short life is about getting these particular moments right, and, right. and the way how it dissolves is that's a really wonderful moment yeah. to me it was just uh, pr- unfortunately really ruined by how one character meets his demise which yeah. is just that is just such a lame yeah. move I'm like right. who who thought of this like Mr. Freeze from Batman and Robin See, and, and again that's another case where it works in the book oh but my. it does not work oh my god! Here. I groaned in the theater I was I was, I was watching like, and uh, I was like oh my god what is this revenge because, is a dish best served cold because I, th- I just think I think Jackson was too married to the source material you know he just really Really wanted to do the book, but you just you know the book does a great job of having time, seeing time pass. Um, you know, you really get the sense that you're watching you know years go by, but you don't get the sense in a two-hour movie like this that mm-hmm. that's happening. Yes, so yeah, again, one of the more disappointing movie-going experiences because I was all in, really looking forward to it, and man, let me down. Yeah. Where do we see the future of Peter Jackson's career going from here? I mean, he did the Hobbit movies. Yeah. But I, I actually haven't seen any of those. I just didn't have any desire to, but... You know, I mean, again, once what, what I did re- you do you guys have heard of the, the Mountains of Madness project that he had put? He was trying to do a take with Guillermo del Toro of making right. a take oh. of H.P. Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness. Oh, and, oh, yes. And then unfortunately it fell through. And then I believe the Hobbit movies were the the consequence of that. Is that right? I, I don't know the specifics, but I do know that del Toro was for a while uh, going to be the director of the Hobbit film one film um <laughs> and then uh that fell through and i believe you know mgm was going to put it out but uh now then it i don't know how one thing led to another but i know that um you know jackson was on board to do the hobbit movie and then oh maybe it'll actually be a two-parter okay and then the studio said no we want a trilogy and then <sighs> it just you know blew up from there i mean it's amazing to me that you know, in spite of everyone's lukewarm reaction to the Hobbit movies, and I don't know anybody who loves them, they've really made a lot of money still. I mean, those things still did really well. I mean, it was, sure. it was quite surprising to me that, you know, it hung on to like the number one and number two spot for as long as it did when it when they came out. Um, hmm. I, and I, but again, it's like, it's too, you know, I mean, I think either Warner Brothers or Peter Jackson, I'm not sure who really overestimated the audience's desire to see more Middle Earth. Um, one Hobbit movie would have been fine. One, one Hobbit movie would have been great. It would have been like, oh, cool, a nice little bonus return to you know the thing that we loved 10 years ago. And then it's done. Um, but I think that just, it just, you know, I think nobody will say that, you know, that that, that movie needed to be three movies long, you know. Yeah, that's kind of why I haven't, I don't know, had any desire to I like the first one. I yeah. think it's okay. I mean, I like that, you know, that he really... He did something interesting with the way it was presented in the theater, correct? Right. It was 48 frames a second. Right. And I think they did that with the second Hobbit movie, too. And then by the third one, he realized, or somebody realized that nobody really wanted that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just not the way movies should be seen. And I saw the 48 frames 
version and it was really hard to stomach it yeah i kept really hearing hard to watch. it was like watching a sporting event on tv or, or i mean like masterpiece theater or something oh, it was yes. like a video yeah. game yeah really. a, a telenova if you feel yeah. it feels this kind of like this level of like where the the very pixels are like way more active than than hmm. but but the result of it was the result of it for me though i did see it in this expanded like viewing format the first hobbit movie and it completely cracked the uncanny valley of CGI in, in, in half. Like, there is no way I could tell what was CG and what was, what was real. Interesting. Every, it looked like it, it all had this amazing level of, of, of vermilicitude to it. Um, I mean, as for, the, as for The Hobbit, I was a fan of The, I was a fan of the Lord of the Rings, and, and I was shocked when he expanded it the first time. Because The Hobbit for, is a very much a kid's lullaby story that it would actually take, like, you could probably read it in under one movie. And if with the, all the expanded editions of The Hobbit, you could probably write it in shorter <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> but, uh, but like, what, I think his next film attempt is a, uh, a take on Tintin. Yeah, that's what I have here. It's uh, on IMDb. His next thing is The Adventures of Tintin, Prisoners of the Sun. Which, again, huh. uh, the first you know, Spielberg's Tintin movie was not a huge success. Um, so, you know, we'll see what, what Peter Jackson does with it. If it's, if it's going to be animated again or what, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, um, uh, like, uh, it makes me wonder what you guys, how, how do you guys think? Uh, do you think he will make a great movie in the next five I years? I think so. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's got his ups and downs, but you know, I, he's I, still, or, you know, not, he's not an old man yet. He's got a lot I think he's probably got a lot left in him to to do. Yeah, and my personal preference is not unlike with with Sam Raimi. It's like I don't want I don't want Sam Raimi to do another Spider Man spectacle necessarily. I think um it would be interesting for him to go back and do another simple plan, in the same way I think it'd be interesting for Peter Jackson to go back and do another Heavenly Creatures, which is what I was hoping the Lovely Bones was gonna be. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't think I don't know if that's gonna happen right away from the sound of things with the Tin Tin movie and stuff. He I mean he does spectacle and great escapist entertainment very, very well. And I'll certainly go to the theater to see something new from Peter Jackson. I'm not like writing him off in that regard, but I wonder though if he is at a point now where he every movie he makes has to be a special effects spectacle and maybe that's where the lovely bones went wrong is because he is such a an important figure in New Zealand mm-hmm. he employs so many people at yeah. Meta Digital that he feels like I have to keep this thing going to, and keep them working and keep them employed so every you know I can't do another a small personal film anymore I got to do these spectacle films that will keep this studio go such a considerate man yeah. such a nice I mean, guy and, and, <laughs> and then it also gets me on the idea on tintin though is that he is more of a um a kind of a beloved character in europe mm-hmm. so and, hmm. and maybe maybe in, maybe in australia as well and i never got a chance to see spielberg's treatment of it but i kind okay. of think i kind of think in terms of like engaging an audience in a like a rousing sense of adventure He's kind of one of the better heirs to Spiel- heirs to what Spielberg uh, could do. Yeah, it's like Spielberg, Zemeckis, Jackson, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I if, you know, Tintin so- a movie sounds like a return to maybe like the first half of King Kong. You know, just that there's a kind of Indiana mm. Jones aspect to the first half of King Kong mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. kind of yeah. old fashioned serial adventure film, and that that might be what this ends up being. And I think he's. 
you know, still got a knack for that. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, no more Hobbit movies. Honestly, no. here, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a crazy suggestion out there for you guys. Uh oh, what would you? I mean, I like the idea on on the adventure side, but what would I think he would do work really well if he did not just a James Bond movie, but a Roger Moore James Bond movie? <laughs> That's Be- <laughs> and the reason I think that is because the reason I think that is because he has a love of like. Tweaking things that he sure. was so, so evident from bad uh-huh, taste, uh-huh. very much in very much in Meet the Feebles, and he even was doing that with with occasional wonderful light touches in Lord of the Rings, like showing your love of the halfling's leaf has really clouded your mind, Gandalf. You know, so he 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 likes to he likes to honor source material, sure. and also give imbue it with more spirit, with yeah. some creativity, with some wit, and just the, the idea of like like the James Bond had already become a self parody, but imagine someone with. With Jackson's imagination, imagine the gadgets that he could think up <laughs> to yeah, have Bond right. involved with. Yeah, that would be fun. I've, I would definitely see that. I would be yeah, more excited yeah. about a Peter Jackson Bond movie or a Michelle Gondry Bond movie, right? Than yeah, Sam uh, Mendes again. And, and then it would also have the helping of like that he works. So, sometimes he can work really, really well with adaptations with, with adaptations that he that he can understand with like a sense of adventure. You know? Yeah, but I think we'd sooner see Christopher Nolan tackle Bond. Yes, than, Nolan's been trying. Yes, Inception is very much of a Bond audition movie in many, mm-hmm, in many, in many, mm-hmm. in many respects. You know, but to, but to have him take a look at some the, the genre. My, I think what I'm trying to get at is. Like if he makes big movies, then there's all this pressure that he's going to make a critical grand statement. But remaking remaking a a, a Moore Bond, remaking Moonraker, sidesteps that very nicely. <laughs> no one expects that to be a great movie. So when he makes it and with twice the energy that the original had, wow, that might get people to wake up and and start really getting excited about a Peter Jackson movie, which is what I really look forward to people I want that. Yeah, Yeah. I want that feeling again of seeing a trailer and going, yeah, I can't wait for the new Peter Jackson movie. Well, I mean, I I can't wait for a new Peter Jackson movie. I mean, I guess, you know, know, after doing three more Hobbit movies, you know, where do you go from there? And it's it's an interesting point in his career. Like, he can't go back to Middle Earth again. And you know, he's uh, from done your, it. from your mouth he's, to Peter Jackson's ears, man. He's done. He's done or his Weinstein's ears. He's done his King Kong movie. You know that was his big passion project. That was his most personal, yeah. you know, dream to realize that. So where do you go from here? Who knows? I would ask the same question to Sam. Sam Raimi yeah. after Oz, the Great and Powerful. Yeah. So disappointed with that, but I don't know. It's like. You can go back and do another Drag Me to Hell. I'd be all for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Peter Peter Jackson seems to somehow like he he has done a little of that, albeit on the producing side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a really wonderful film called Black Sheep, which uh, he ended up producing, and Wada ends up making the special effects for these for these uh, sheep that go horribly, horribly wrong. Which is oh yeah, I've I for one would like to keep Peter Jackson to keep his theme of gratuitous violence against uh, uh, sheep and other livestock. So I think that was a, that's a trend that can continue. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and that just happened in... Well, I don't want to say that. I shouldn't say anything about the new Tim Burton movie. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah, surprisingly, uh, that's another interesting career to follow. Like, we did a Tim Burton episode early on, maybe when Alice in Wonderland came out, but it would be interesting to go back and you know talk about his latter career and how it's changed and how some people have turned against him and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's another director that could sort of be, uh, you know, lumped in. But, I mean, he's got a more 
outlandish, fantastical, weird sensibility yes. than someone yeah. like Peter Jackson. Yeah, as Colin brought up earlier earlier in this podcast, like with uh, with uh, Colin Trevor now and uh, and and his upcoming and his upcoming movie, it's really interesting to see how people's like personal themes and altruist tendencies have, are now able to jump. They're able to leapfrog past independent efforts into major budgeted, budgeted pictures in a way that was never possible in yeah. the film landscape before. Yeah. And so it's really cool to see how they manifest and refract upon themselves depending upon the budget and the scope of the film. And that's what's so enjoyable about doing this show is you get to learn about those connections and themes when you binge watch a bunch of movies from the same director. So mm-hmm. let's give our top three Peter Jackson movies and wrap it up. All right. I'll let you go first because okay. you're the biggest Peter Jackson fan I know. Well, all right. Um, so <laughs> my number one is Return of the King. Uh, number two, Heavenly Creatures. Number three, King Kong. Hmm. I will go number one, Heavenly Creatures. Number two, Dead Alive. And number three, Return of the King, which I need to rewatch, but I certainly remember loving it. Um, and and for me, I would do like my, the number one for me is um, Fellowship. Ooh. Number two is Return of the King, and number three is uh, Heavenly Creatures. Nice, nice. Right. Very good. Thank you cool. so much, guys, for being on. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Uh, where can people yes. find your work, as usual, so they can follow you? Uh, WGNRadio.com under Nick DeGilio's show. You can listen to the podcast of our movie reviews every week with Eric Childress and Nick DeGilio. And uh, RogerEbert.com. Uh, you can read about a short film every month that I write about and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Colin C-O-L-L-I-N underscore Souter S-O-U-T-E-R and uh, in case somebody in the Chicagoland area needs a wedding filmed multiheadwedding.com wonderful although I know it's not wedding season anymore it's, it's still- always wedding season okay good <laughs> I'll never say that okay Al. Um, um, yes. Well, yeah. I, I just want to add that, Colin, very much looking forward to that House of Straw movie that you were recommended earlier in the podcast. I'm uh, eagerly seeing if that's going to be part of some sort of pigs-based trilogy. Oh, wait till you see this film. <laughs> uh, and and as, as for where you can find me, I'm mostly located at a website of cinemal2001.com wordpress.com uh, where I have different uh, reviews including like a, re- uh, a, a link to a recap of the f- all the films me and the film discussion group have seen at Toronto and various articles and essays about different parts about movies. Uh, the latest one is about how uh, Star Wars is the greatest uh, child mind control experiment that's ever been made. Ooh, okay. mm, that's, I want to read that one. So yeah, the next episode is coming in three weeks this time because you know what? It's Halloween season, and I want to watch some horror movies. And the next director is going to be on Jacques. T- oh God, I did it again. Jacques Tonet. Is that how you say it? How do you say? I ja- think so. Okay, I think so too. Okay. It's funny because like the. <laughs> The guest on the Roger Corman episode said it the right way, and I forgot already. But anyway, you all know him as the director of Cat People. Sweet. Yeah, so we've got a lot of old school horror to watch that I can't wait for. And our guests will be Robert Reinecke and Nat Almoral. So look forward to that. Those, those two gentlemen are from a great podcast called Still Watching the Skies, where they tackle a couple of science fiction movies every month. And I'm big fans, and they're great friends. So look forward to that in three weeks. Um, also, there's a bonus bonus episode coming your way to celebrate 
uh, me and Patrick's favorite month of the year, October, and you'll know what that is. That special treat is coming up very soon. So, yeah, have a lot to watch for this horror film season, but uh, do stay in touch over at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email to uh, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, thank you, Colin. Thank you. And thank you, Al. Hey, thanks for having me as always, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk to you again very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Because, like, yeah, if, you're, if your erection lasts more than four hours, go to the doctor and fuck him!